0: Welcome into another episode of Everything is Logistics, a podcast for the thinkers in Freight, hosted by me, Blythe Bromleave. And on this show, we're telling the stories about how your favorite stuff and people make it from point A to B. In today's show, we're doing something new where we pick the best interviews from the industry's thought leaders and create a mashup of these episodes that you can listen over a period of time that way, if you want a crash course and say, autonomous trucks, or what shippers want out of the 3PL partnership, you can listen to one long-form episode instead of having to dig through our library of you know 250-plus episodes at this time of recording. So all of these episodes that you're going to listen to today are from within the last year, so hopefully the insights from these folks will help you map out what your next year looks like. So with all that said, let's get into it. With all that said, let's talk about the elephant in the room and that a recession is here. And with marketing in particular, marketing for a lot of companies is a is an extra. It's not a main focus. And so when any time that cost-cutting initiatives come into play, marketing is typically the first thing that is cut, whether it's positions or whether it's ad spend or content marketing spend. There's probably going to be some budget cuts being made if they haven't been made already. And usually, I I speak from experience, marketing is the first thing to go. That's why you see across this industry, not necessarily with freight tech, but that's why you see across this industry, so many different marketers that are working as a one-person team. They're likely managing several other different roles within the organization and marketing is just kind of thrown at them. That was my experience. And that's continuously the experience that I see for a lot of marketers out there. But no matter what size business you're in, no matter what kind of team you're structured in, there are still ways to win online. And a lot of these things are going to become increasingly more important as staff strengths, as budget strengths. And until we find out where this sort of new normal is going to end up, then you should be looking at everything that you're doing in your marketing mix and in your tech stack in order to find those ways for the find the low-hanging fruit. So first, let's talk about some of the cooler things that I saw within the freight tech space. So we talked about that top 25 list, but let's talk about what happens whenever you're actually arriving on one of these websites within that top 25 list. And the most essential thing is to book a meeting the book a meeting CTA, CTA stands for call to action. It's usually the button that appears in the upper right hand corner of a website. Now the reason that it appears in the upper right hand corner of a website is that typically that first frame of a website that you see, that's called that hero section. You see a headline and then your eyes gaze to the right. This is is why websites are designed this way, is that you read the headline, your eyes continue to gaze to the right and you see that main call to action. That's why it's placed there. But then you also have the situation where you read in a almost like a sideways triangle format where left to right and then you go back over. And that's why you commonly will see a CT, another CTA below that headline text. So you read the headline first and then you see the CTA. And then in case you didn't see it again, or in case there's another CTA that draws your attention more, it's going to be in one of those two places, 90%. Probably ninety percent of the time. So, with the with keeping that in mind, all of these freight tech companies follow that f- follow that model as far as trying to get your attention. But there were a few of them that stood out to me. And the first one I want to point out to is Project Forty Four. You didn't even have to leave their homepage once you click on that button. If you're looking at the screen right now. You'll see that's that, that's their hero section that is on the first thing that you see when you get to the project 44 website is that hero section. Now, on the right hand side, you'll see a large form that, that is fills up the screen from top to bottom. Now, that form immediately pops out as soon as you click on the, the schedule a demo CTA that's in the upper right hand corner. Now, this pops out and you don't even have to go to another page. So that's what I like about this particular example is that they're making it stupid easy to, in order for somebody to arrive to their site and then to get the main action completed of what Project 44 wants that user to do. So that's a really good example. The next example that I want to give is for Kites because their demo page takes it up a notch. So once you click on it, they take you to a brand new page. Now, if you're looking at this page, there is a very simple form that's on the left hand side of the page. It asks for your first and ask for your full name, your business email, company name, phone number, and then additional comments. But on the right-hand side, they have a video that plays that covers some of the common questions or the common features that they get a lot of questions about within their platform. So if somebody is just browsing and they're not exactly sure if they want to book a meeting yet, they just kind of want to check around and poke around to see if this is the right solution for them, they have that video right there to answer any more of those concerns that a visitor might have or questions that they might have before they actually set up a meeting. So that solution might be right for them or it might not be a good fit for them. But that video is going to help entice them either way in order to complete that form and then to set up that meeting. Now if you have this option on your site, the next level that you could do is once the user does what you want them to do and actually fills out the form that next step I think is one that we can optimize a little bit more and a good example of that we'll go back to project 44 for a second because they have a really great thank you page that's on there after you fill out a form they let you know hey thank you we're going read we're you know we're gonna reach out to you as soon as possible but until then, here is some relative content that we think that you will like now you can do this in in one of two ways you can just sort of show like a faq article or a you know just a general overview article but you could take it up a notch by in the in the field of the form that that person is filling out, they're likely going to fill out if they're a technology provider, if they're a 3PL, if they're a carrier, if they're you know some other you know version of the in, in another industry segment. Then you can show them customized content depending on the type of segment that they fall into. So that's taking it up a notch. So it's kind of like setting up dependencies based on the kind of segment that that user falls into, and then showing them the relevant content that could answer you know, additional questions and, and really optimizing that flow for getting the visitor to your site, getting them to take the action that they want to take and then so giving them information while they wait for the scheduling gaps because that's where I'm going to cover next because there is a little bit of a gap here no matter what company that I out of all the carriers and the brokers and the freight tech companies that I've looked at for these stories over the last few weeks none of them are using calendar booking tools and that to me is the biggest gap where a lot of companies can take advantage of today. Now, if you're thinking of like a, a your HubSpot calendar, if you're a HubSpot user, another solution is a, a tool like Calendly where you have these built-in calendars and you can sync your sales team emails and your sales team calendars to this solution for like a hundred bucks a year, and you save a considerable amount of money, but also you put the power in the user's hands. That when they're arriving to your your site and they've decided, hey, I want to have a meeting with you guys, you're removing that extra barrier of having to communicate back and forth of when is a good time to meet. Instead that Calendy calendar or HubSpot calendar can then sync up the availability, the the, the time that is in your calendar, in your company's calendar, it can sync it up to only show available times to that prospect that is on your website. So you can skip all the back and forth, you know, what day, what time is good for you, and they can immediately book a meeting and they can get on the phone or they can get on a a quick Zoom and then have that conversation and they can do it on their own terms and that's one less thing that they have to worry about. I can believe that more companies in the space are not doing this it drives me crazy because this is an inefficient this is the biggest inefficiency that i see online is the easiest to fix and it's one of those things that it's most affordable too it's just i think I, i i don't know why more companies aren't doing this maybe it's a lack of knowledge maybe it's a lack of awareness or or maybe it's just a matter of that they haven't just audited this flow in a long time but that is a huge gap that the smbs or even large businesses really any 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 business in any industry should be taking advantage of this because these tools are so advanced. Because everybody's working from home, these tools are much more uh, business-friendly in order to, to help streamline a lot of these efforts. So that's one big gap that I see missing. Another big gap... I see missing and you have heard me talk about this on several different shows is the field how did you hear how did you hear about us the how did you hear about us is the most important thing you need to be adding to your website today and the reason that you you want to do this is because it gives you so much more insight versus a, a typical attribution report now for modern B2B buying habits a lot of these attribution software platforms. So think about, you know, Marketo, uh, Six Sense, uh, HubSpot. A lot of them provide great intent data, but what they don't, where they're missing the mark, and where it's not really trackable, is to find out what is resonating the most with your audience. And you find out what's resonating the most by adding one field to your website forms, the conversion forms. So you book a demo, book a meeting. Add how did you hear about us. Make it required and make it a free text field. Do not add any drop downs because that will influence what people select. A lot of times people, you know, will get lazy and they'll just pick whatever one from the random list that you have on that, that you've listed on your website. Maybe there's some that are that they heard about you and it's not listed on your dropdown. By making it a free text field, then you are able to put the power in the user's hands and then they can let you know exactly how they heard of you. Because I'll give you one example. My business, I I publish multiple podcasts every single week. And on my lead reports, when I get them each week, when I look at my marketing software, when I look at maybe HubSpot or Google Analytics, the reports are telling me that Google Search sent me leads to my site. So when a lead comes to my site and they're filling out that form, I'm getting on those marketing reports that Google Organic Search sent those visitors and that's where I should technically invest more of my money. But on the how did you hear about us field, the users are overwhelmingly over 80% of the users that come to my website and submit a form are hearing about my company and hearing about me through the podcast. And so if I were to just listen to the attribution reports that big, you know, marketing tech software firms send me, then what I would do, I would probably cut out the podcast altogether and then I would double down on Google search ads. But knowing that I have this information and I'm getting direct customer feedback, that's another instance where you have a situation where you're getting that clear answer from your customer. It's vastly different than what the hub, when, you know, some of these marketing software companies are going to tell you and you're going to make the right investments because that's directly what your customers are telling you. So you use both, but you prioritize what is moving the needle by taking direct feedback from your customers so that was missing on the overwhelming majority of forms that i have seen especially in the entire industry if you, i there was one example where i saw that they did have this but it was a drop down where you had to select you know instagram or linkedin uh youtube some of these other social media platforms and that's fine but it's not going to give you the real raw data that you're really going to use to make real business decisions about what's moving the needle So, a few other things that I want to get into really quick, you know, before we bring on our first guest with Jill, a few other cool things I saw. Um, consider making it stupid easy for users to get to your website and then funnel those leads. A good example for this is Convoy, which has really stepped up. Side side note, we really stepped up their graphic design game. I, I talked to them over at the, the Freightways Conference earlier this year. And they said that they have several graphic designers on staff. And you can tell in a lot of their branding. But if you're looking at this page, and it's a Contact Us page, you're going to fill out... You're going to choose whether you're a shipper, a carrier, or a broker. And what I like about this is that you're funneling whoever is trying to reach out to contact your company, you're funneling those leads. Into the appropriate source, or maybe it's not a lead. Maybe it's it's it, uh, another example. You know, freight tech space um, is not a lead. Maybe it's a uh, uh, someone just reaching out for customer service, um, some other kind of need. But at least this way, you are funneling those leads and those customer inquiries into the right place. Another one that I want to give a shout out to is Flexport. They have their blog and their social media strategy is great. They recently released uh, released like a top uh, fifty five like supply chain influencers to follow and what this does is that this helps kind of stroke the ego a little bit of some of the other influencers in the space so a lot of those influencers see this they you know they they get really happy they get really proud and then they share that with their audience and so using a strategy like this really anyone in this industry can use this by creating a top you know maybe a 10 drivers to follow or to subscribe to on YouTube or a top twenty shippers to follow on LinkedIn. This is a similar strategy that anyone can replicate. And what it does is it brings awareness, it brings eyeballs to your brand and your solution. So that's another really good one in order to to, you know, I guess pay attention to or maybe implement into your strategy. And then another one is truckstop.com. As soon as you arrive to their their website, they kind of punch you in the face like right away with their pricing. And so at truckstop.com, they're letting you know right away, like this is our pricing. And if you want to continue learning more about us, then let's do it. But here is where we're... This is where we stand. Now, 3PLs and carriers you can't do this unless you're, I guess, a tech-enabled 3PL. But on the flip side, if you're a service provider, if you're a solution provider, then this is a great way to put your pricing front and center so you're not wasting your time getting on meetings with people who can't afford your solution. Now, all of that to say is that as a one-person marketer, how can you use this information? Well, The first one is the book a meeting function should be prominent and you should audit that flow regularly to make sure that those visitors are not only arriving to your site, but then they're being followed up with should they answer that or should they fill out a form in order to get in contact with you. That's where a lot of gaps... It sounds like an easy thing to 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 make sure that it works right, but you have to audit this on a regular basis to make sure that those leads are being followed up with. And then uh, for God's sakes... Add the how did you hear about us to your forms. It is single-handedly the most important investment you can make in your website. It can be done in as little as an hour, probably less than that. And it can be done for under 100 bucks. It shouldn't cost more than that. So James, yep. welcome into Cyberly. Thank you so much for joining us here. We're at PodFest yep. in Orlando, Florida, and I was able to snag James over <laughs> for a quick interview to, to give us a lowdown on cybersecurity. Sure. So, so give us a little bit of a background on, on how you came to work in cybersecurity.
1: Well, I, as a good friend always likes to say, I took a wrong turn. Yeah. <laughs> no, seriously, I've been in cybersecurity now about 20 years. I started out in IT. Nobody ever really... Nowadays, you're starting to see it, but pretty well, anyone you talk with in cybersecurity, how did they get into it? Well, they just kind of fell into it or they got dragged into it. Uh, For me, it was kind of the, the same thing where I was working in an IT role and was doing network security and uh, working with applications and systems. And our corporate security officer said, you know, you should study for the CISSP. And I was like, the CI what? Yeah, And it was was the industry standard of cybersecurity certification. So the certified information system security professional studied for that back in 2008 and earned that achievement and then got working in cybersecurity. So 14 years dedicated in cybersecurity, but Uh, Off and on, pretty well. Cybersecurity has always been something that's been of interest. Physical security, cybersecurity. And uh, now getting to work in it and uh, working as a security awareness advocate for Before, which means I get to go around and I talk to people about cybersecurity. I even teach it. I teach. I'm a professor at uh, Valencia College here in Orlando. And I teach a security course uh, for them as a part-time faculty member. So it's talking cybersecurity all the time.
0: So when you say I work in cybersecurity, what does that, I guess, typical day look like for you?
1: Typical day? There isn't a typical day, which is... (laughs) One of the things I love about this job, every day there's always something different. Uh, whether I'm presenting to an organization about cyber hygiene, whether I'm talking to people about ransomware, talking about ways they need to uh, strengthen up their security awareness programs, developing a security culture. you know, go And then everything from researching and keeping up to date on the latest cybersecurity trends, the latest different attacks that are going on, creating presentations and, and uh, looking at ways that organizations can increase their resiliency.
0: And now, when you say uh, cybersecurity awareness, what does that look like from a company perspective?
1: So, with cybersecurity awareness, when we look at all the different attacks that are happening to organizations, we look at ransomware, colonial pipeline. 80 plus percent, 85% of the attacks that happened last year, and this just came out in the Verizon Data Breach Investigation Report. A big report comes out every year. And when when you look at that report, 85% of the attacks were as a result of a human being. Whether it was somebody clicking on a phishing email, whether it was somebody misconfigured a server or uploaded data into the cloud for production testing, whatever it may be. But 85% of the attacks were as a result of a human error. So security awareness is about getting people aware of cybersecurity because a lot of us have been dragged into it. We are the digital immigrants coming when it comes to technology. We have our children today. At least I know my my two daughters have grown up with technology, now have the iPhones and 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 all that other technology. A lot of us have you know, we were, we were born and it wasn't around and we've, we've had to learn how to use it. Unfortunately, we've learned the bad habits. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, when we get an email and it's, it's an invoice coming from a vendor of ours, we're like, Oh, it's a ven- It's a vendor invoice. Okay. I'll click on the link and I'll open it up. You don't go through a check to go, okay, is this really coming from that vendor? How do I really know that it's come from that me vendor, and it's not some cyber criminal sending in a malicious PDF file for them to try and gain access into our work environment. And so, through phishing attacks, social engineering, cyber criminals are figuring out more and more ways to get into organizations bypassing the technology and getting through the human way to gain access into the networks, infrastructure, and the data.
0: So it's not necessarily uh, tech-focused right now where somebody is behind a computer trying to actively hack into your system. It's more they're just targeting... employees that would just fall for it.
1: Yeah. When you start looking at the different cyber criminal groups, the nation states, they operate like a business. You know, as, as you have your business and your, your, your listeners have their organizations that they work for, they all have business models and processes. The cyber criminals have the same thing. They have those first level technicians that are going through and sending out the emails or figuring out ways to gain access into an environment. When they get into it, Then you have your second level techs that'll come in and they'll do a couple things to try and gain access into the domain uh, domain controllers, active directory, getting into the heart of the, the network and the systems. And if they run into a brick wall, well, then there's third level techs that can come in and they'll try some things. It's a whole business model. And then they'll go through their processes of gaining access. And once they're in, then another team comes in and starts looking at how do we exfiltrate that data? And then finally, a lot of the time, uh we see with ransomware the last step in that whole process is once they've stolen all your data then they hit you with ransomware and that's when you know you've been you've been hit the sad part is a lot of people don't realize that they've been the cyber criminals have been in there for 80, 90, 200 days.
0: And why, why do they wait so long to let you know? Is it just them collecting all of the data that you know is the company's resources? And what kind of data are they looking
1: for? So anything and anything they can. Cyber criminals are in it to do one thing and one thing only, make money. Mm. And by making money, they'll do it a variety of ways. One, they're going to steal that data and sell it off on the dark web, on the black market. Because the ID, social security numbers, driver's license number, uh, identification numbers, like credit cards, that is information they can sell. $25, $10 a pop. And when they're stealing thousands and millions of records, that adds up. Ransomware is kind of the big flashy one where they'll get into your system, they'll exfiltrate your data, and they'll be doing multiple levels of extortion. The first level is going to be, all right. We've made all your data unavailable. You want the decryption key to do it? That's going to cost you. And a lot of the times, cyber criminals go through and they do their reconnaissance. They go through and they'll look at the company and say, "Wow, they made five billion dollars last year." Okay, we're going to hit them up for five hundred million or fifty million. They're going to look at a percentage of your profit that you've made as an organization, and they're going to want a part of it because you haven't spent the money to properly secure your organization, you might have the firewall and think, okay, we're good to go. Or you might have an IT and a security team. But if you're not educating all your users, because your users, if they have an email account, they have a key to the front door to your organization. And I think that's what happens a lot of times that folks aren't aware about is that all your users in your organization have that key and they can let in that cyber criminal. And so they'll extort you for getting that data back. And the encryption process is very, very quick. So if you think about it, and I do this as a demonstration with my students, I have a virtual machine that I share with them and we encrypt it uh, as part of the lesson. We'll go through and I have about 50 gigabytes worth of data and I launched the encryption program and it takes up anywhere from 10 seconds to a minute to encrypt about 50 gigabytes worth of data. So you think about that on a a bigger scale with your with organizations where you've got terabytes of data. It's only going to take a matter of seconds to minutes for all your data to get encrypted. And once it starts, it's very difficult to stop uh Unless you can catch it in process, and depending on how many servers and all your data. So that's the first part. The second part then is they be- they're going to extort your users, your your employees, your customers, your clients, they're going to go after them and go, hey, we got all this information from Acme organization and we now have like medical organizations. We now have your patient information. Wow. We have a social security number. We have your x-ray information. And um, if you want to give us $500, we'll delete it for you. So they'll go to those links because, again, it's all about making money for them and they, they're going to do it any way they can, whether it's from the organization, whether it's from the doctors, patients, customers, whatever, or even the employees. They'll go after the employees saying, hey, we got your social security number, your address. We know you live. Give us $300 and we'll delete the information.
0: How can you actually trust them that they're going to do what they say and, and release you from the ransom? Right. And, and it, how often, I guess, are businesses and maybe people in general paying right. to just get rid of the problem? But does the problem actually go away?
1: Exactly. And that is always one of the big concerns. As I mentioned earlier, I talked about they have business models. They're in a business to make money. If, like, let's say for an example, uh, an organization that... uh, provides delivery trucks. If I were to take the money from a a customer and not deliver the trucks, how long am I going to stay in business? Not very long. Same thing with the cyber criminals. If they know that if they don't turn over the decryption key when somebody pays, then their threat isn't valid. People know that, well, just because I'm going to give you the money, I'm not going to get the key. Well, then I'm not going to pay you. It's in their best interest to turn over the key. The cyber criminals are constantly changing the encryption programs. So the key is different for everybody. And so it's in their best interest to make sure that they live up to their promise of either deleting the data or turning over the decryption key. Otherwise, the word will spread quickly. They'll be like, oh yeah, they, it's not no point paying them because you're not going to get the key. No, you'll get the key. 97% of the time, the information gets turned back over or the key gets turned back over to So they're almost the like honest criminals. Yeah. Yeah. It's a business model. They got to get paid. They want to make money. So yeah, it's like, okay, you paid us. Okay. The lesson is, has been learned by the organization because We caught you, we got into your organization, and we were able to steal your data. You're not securing it properly. (laughs) You're not taking the right steps to protect your organization in getting your users educated. And a lot of the time, the cyber criminals come back and go, this is what you need to fix. Goodness (laughs) gracious. So they're almost
0: acting like as consultants after they steal all of your information. And then so they make the money, and then they advise you on how to prevent this from happening in the future. Why would they advise you on, why would they get rid of, I guess, a revenue stream? What would stop them from advising you and then coming back two years later and saying, Hey, we got you again. It's time to
1: Because that's, that's it. Mm-hmm. A lot of the times, um, even consultants, I have a friend of mine who's been a consultant for years. He would go around every year. He'd go back and he'd be like, Hey, have you fixed this, this, and this? Oh no, we haven't got the funding for that yet. Oh no. it it hasn't been a big concern for us. Or we figured that wasn't going to be a problem. And he's he's like, okay, well, this is your organization. I'm telling you what's wrong with it and what you need to fix. If you don't want to fix it, that's the risk you're willing to take. But if you get hit, you know, there's an I told you so in there, but. The cyber criminals are doing the same thing. They're letting them know that says, hey, you need to do this, this and this. They know they're not going to fix it.
0: And so when you talk about, uh, you know, some of these different organizations and they're running as an operation, they're running as a business. Is this I imagine it's a growing industry. Is this a a growing industry in in everywhere globally or is it mainly like concentrated in like maybe like a Russia, China, Eastern
1: Europe? So the nation state. Uh, organizations that are out there, like the the ones that we always hear about in the news, China, Russia, the, the Philippines, North Korea. Yeah, those are the nation states that we see. But then we also see criminal organizations kind of, you think of like the mob of years ago, back in the 50s, the Al Capones. Well, there are cyber criminal groups that are very well organized, very well funded. And mainly because of the ransomware attacks, you know, when they when they hit organizations, they're hitting them up from hundreds of thousands of dollars to millions of dollars, and th- that millions of dollars just funds them. And when you have so many people paying all the time, uh, they're just raking in the money and uh, keep them funded.
0: So, how I guess as a business, I, I, I briefly learned about you know cybersecurity insurance, and that is also okay. a growing segment of right. the industry is that actually worth it to get cybersecurity insurance? I mean, in your professional opinion.
1: Um, Cybersecurity insurance, up until like a year or two ago was booming. We were seeing a lot of organizations buying cyber insurance. Uh, It's been around since the early 2000s. um, When I, prior to before I worked for a, a little German company called Siemens. And even there, we were being approached by our customers wanting us to get cyber insurance. And cyber insurance is good to help protect your organization in the event that you suffer some type of breach or major incident where you need funds really quick. You know, if you have a car accident, that your car insurance is going to help pay for the repair of your car. If you get hit in a data breach, that insurance is going to either help you pay the recovery costs, bringing in a third-party company to do forensic analysis. If you get hit with ransomware, that might help pay cover the, the cost of the ransomware itself. However, the problem is so many companies have been buying up the insurance and then getting hit. The cyber insurance companies were running out of money and going wow. and running into a lot of problems. It's now gotten to a point where the premiums have skyrocketed. You know, it used to be you could get a multimillion dollar or maybe a billion cyber insurance policy. Now you're lucky if you're getting a $500,000 or a million dollar insurance policy. Because so many organizations got hit, the premiums have gone up so much higher, 120, 150, 200% in premiums for a $500,000 or a million dollar insurance. Uh, Because so many organizations were getting hit, what cyber insurance is doing now is they're coming in with their red teams. They're coming in with their teams of people to assess your cybersecurity readiness, so to speak. They want to see that you've got programs in place, processes. They want to make sure that if you're doing any type of VPNs in your organizations or logging in, you're doing multi- factor authentication. And a lot of the time with MFA is people think that that's the silver bullet. You know, used to be, hey, we got a firewall, we're protected. That was the silver bullet. It's going to take a a machine gun of silver bullets to effectively protect your organization. It's not going to be one thing you have to do. It's like layers. It's like an onion. It's going to take layers. You're going to need to have education for your users. You're going to have to have the technology and you're going to have to have the processes. Mm. Multi-factor authentication comes in a lot. Zero trust is another zero trust architecture where you're validating all the different devices and users coming into the network is crucial. Cyber insurance is just another one of those layers that you need to properly reduce the risk within your organization and effectively secure it.
0: You you mentioned that it's almost like an onion where you're just peeling back the layers and you're probably crying. Each time, probably yeah, 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 each one of these prongs on right? this system. And so, when you when you talk about these these different attacks, uh, what does that look like? I guess from like a, a war room perspective. So, your your company is under attack. What do you do? As what is that first step that you should do?
1: Your first of all, it's going to come down to your incident response playbook. You want to have a playbook. It's kind of like in football, you got a playbook, all your plays of everything you're going to do, the the offense is lining up or their defense is lined up one way. Okay, we're going to call an audible and we're going to shift. You need to have a playbook within your organization for your incident response. And you're going to have either a team of people that are going to run that playbook or it's going to be your IT person or your head of IT. And it's basically a breakdown of what needs to be done. If you get hit with ransomware, okay, we got to disconnect the internet. we got to... Re- remove the opportunity for the cyber criminals to get back in. We then got to start restoring all of our systems. If you have a, a data breach and data gets leaked out, well, now you got to get your legal team involved, your public relations, your communication teams involved. They all have to come together. And so you have to have all these playbooks put together so that you know what needs to be done. You don't want to be thinking at the time of the incident, okay, shoot, we just got bre- we got hit with ransomware. Now what do we do? That is not the time to be figuring that out. If it is, then you're going to go out of business, mm. especially if you're a small or medium business. You want to have, you want to be proactive and sit down with your IT, your MSP, your, your managed service provider, your IT teams, your InfoSec teams, and figure out what is our game plan? Because if we get hit, what's our first step? And usually that first step is, all right, let's get everybody in here and what we need to do. You're going to be looking at analyzing data. There might be teams of people you might be calling. You might have a third party company that's going to come in and do the forensic analysis. You might be calling the FBI because that's what the FBI is there for, to be able to help businesses recover from those cyber attacks. You know, it's going to be, you know, what level do we call the CEO at three o'clock in the morning? Those are the questions that you've got to go through and be able to answer as an organization when it comes to those attacks. So it's, it's, the, it's the scout's Motto: You got to be prepared.
0: Be prepared. And so, w- w- how do you, I guess, know the level of severity that right. you need to contact the CEO in the middle right. of the night? The FBI is—is is it for really any cybersecurity attack that or, or, or attack that you're experiencing, or is it you know varying levels that you need to be right. concerned with?
1: It depends. Which is always our favorite answer inside in <laughs> marketing, it, too. <laughs> yeah, it depends. <laughs> but it depends on the severity of the attack. Did you have one machine that got hit with ransomware? Okay, we don't need to call the CEO. Do we have our entire server, all of our servers been hit? Okay, are we now? A lot of it when the CEO gets involved is what's the impact to the business? And you're, as part of that incident response plan, you're going to go through and do a business um, a business analysis, a business impact, a BIA, business impact analysis. And you're going to go through and do that You're gonna work with your business. You're going to identify the assets in your organization that are most important that you have to protect. When you think about certain organizations, let's say a a particular cola company out of Atlanta, you know, what's important to them? It's their formula. If you think of a fast food chicken um, restaurant, it's those 11 herbs and spices. You know, that's what they've got to protect. So within your organization, you need to be able to figure out what's critical. If we lose this, are we going to go out of business? And when you discover those, that's what you have to be able to protect. And that's where the layers come in, where you have to be able to protect that, organize those assets, that data, that equipment, because if those go down and you can't do your business, my economics professor told me when I was in college, if you can't do anything for three days in your business, you go out of business. And so that's what you have to be able to go through and figure out what's the most important thing I have to protect, protect it, And control the access of who gets to that, making sure that only the authorized people can. Because if a cyber criminal gets in into the accounting, somebody in accounting, well, that accounting person shouldn't have access to all the R&D materials in your organization or shouldn't have access to the HR systems. And so you want to be able to make sure that you're restricting access for the necessary people. So HR, look at HR systems. Finance, look at finance systems. Your IT people only look at IT systems. And even then, you still want to be able to control their access as well.
0: And so uh, when I used to work at 3PL and I would work in the office and I was in charge of the marketing, they would set me up on my own IP address because right. I needed to have access to different social media in order to post and, and on behalf of the company. Is that almost a better setup for companies to have individual IPs Because I almost think, you know, from the work from home example, everybody's working from home. And is that a security nightmare? But it almost sounds like it might be better for security because they all have individual IPs. Am I thinking about that wrong or,
1: or? So you're on the right. You're on a good track when they put you. Everybody has their own IP address inside of an organization. It's how everybody gets designated. Think of it like a street address. Working from home for security people, ironically is a nightmare. Mm. When everybody is in the office building and they're connected to the corporate network in the building it's a lot easier to manage. It. When you've got people from working from home, what you want to have is some sort of a VPN or secure connection back to the organization. Now, a lot of organizations are working with cloud environments, your email, your sales systems, your marketing equi- um, platforms. You know, though, a lot of those are now in the cloud. Um, I know organizations that have no servers on-prem or on their prem- premises because everything is all cloud-based. So when you're working with everything cloud-based, you can have all your users work remotely because you have to secure their machine to make sure they don't get impacted. So security awareness training, making sure you've got what's called EDR, endpoint detection and response systems, you're going to have that all centrally managed. But essentially, you've got people not working in the office. So it's a lot harder to collaborate and communicate with them. So when you are working remotely, you're relying on a lot more, you're relying on users to be a lot more educated and aware of the security dangers that are out there. So if they do see a phishing email that comes in or something that looks suspicious, they know how to report it, It goes into their IT team and then they can take the necessary actions or protect it.
0: And so from, I guess from that lens, it it almost, it sounds like a nightmare (laughs) for an an added security, added, you know, cost and time and energy. I guess, what does a a, a modern security team look like within an organization? Is it, it should, you know, small businesses be having, you know, somebody that they should contact, you know, or or on call for different security uh, incidences or is it, you know, more of like a, a medium to larger size business problem that you should start thinking about these things.
1: Everybody wants to be thinking about mm-hmm. cybersecurity because every, whether you're a small dentist's office, doctor's office, whether you're a small manufacturing, whether you're you're a third-party provider, you have customers, you have services you're providing. And if it's if a cyber criminal gets into your organization through a phishing attack or they gain in because you've got an unpatched server connected to the internet, um, cyber criminals will leverage whatever they can to be able to make that money. And they don't care if, if you you make a million dollars a year or a billion dollars a year. For them, you're an opportunity to be able to make money. A lot of the times people think, oh, I'm small potatoes. I, I got a small business. They're not going to impact me. That's probably true. But are you willing to risk the, 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 the chance that a cyber criminal could get into your organization? And if they did, what does that look like? Mm-hmm. You know, what are they going to steal? And if you think, because I think years ago, people would be like, oh, I don't care if a criminal gets into my computer. You know, all I got are my pictures. Well, the problem is, is they get into your computer. um, They're going to use your trusted connections. You have friends and family, and they're going to use those trusted connections to get Uh, your friends and family to click on links. Mm. Because one of the common ones is, especially in Facebook that we see, you'll get a a message from a friend that says, hey, I think I saw you in this video. And you're like, you saw me in a video? What, I don't remember a video. And you click on the link and it's a malware.
0: Okay, so when we're talking about from the small business lens, and even like I have, I technically have a small business. Sure. How should I, you know, the solopreneurs out there, the, the entrepreneurs that are just getting their business started, What realistically, like from a budget perspective, from a time perspective, should you be investing into, you know, controlling or having a cybersecurity plan?
1: Right. If you're relying completely on the cloud, you're using third-party services, you know, whether it's the sales forces, HubSpots, whatever it may be. But if you're using third-party services, they're going to have security programs in place, especially the big ones. But you as an entrepreneur, it's probably going to be you and one or two other people. So whatever you're, wherever you're storing your data, you want to make sure that's secure and protected. You want to make sure you're using a large uh, cloud provider like the Googles, like the Microsofts. They have security packages within their workspace, their environments. You want to make sure you're utilizing those. Pay the money now because in the event that you were to have your email breached, somebody sends you a phishing email and your computer gets hit and they steal whatever it is that you're working on, whatever it is that is your uh, crown jewels, we'll say, if they're able to steal that and then run off with that or share it to the world, well, now you're you're effectively, you're gonna be out of business. So you wanna protect your email, plain and simple. Mm -hmm. And you wanna make sure that you have an understanding that you go, go through and be able to spot any phishing emails. And you're probably getting dozens, hundreds of emails a day. But anytime I get an email, there's always three questions I ask myself. Am I expecting the email? Do I know the person sending it? And are they asking me to do something in a hurried manner or with some sense of urgency? Mm -hmm. If I'm getting a weird feeling about any of those responses, usually if I'm answering yes to any of those, then I'm going to take an extra moment to verify who's sending it to me. One of the things in your email, you can go up and you can click on because you'll see somebody's name, you know, John Smith or Jane Doe. And you can click on that. You can see the email address. And so if it's an email address you recognize, okay, well, then you know the person. If it's something where you don't know the person, okay, well, what is it they're asking you to do? And a lot of the times I talked about earlier, ransomware was kind of the big flashy, hey, we got you. The silent killer that's out there, and this one is a $35 billion enterprise, is what we call CEO fraud or business email compromise. And this is where the cyber criminals get into your email and they sit there and they watch your email that you get because they're able to monitor it. And what they're doing is they're looking for invoices. One attack that they do is they're looking for invoices that are coming in. And let's say you get an email that comes in from acmecorporation.com. They will go out and create an email address, uh, a website, but they will transpose some some of the characters inside of the word corporation. So they could do acme Cop-eration. They could switch the R and the P oh, because wow. the way our brains read, we read like left to right, but we only read the beginning and the end and our brain automatically fills in the rest automatically, unless you're actually going through and checking to make sure that the website is proper. That's what the cyber criminals are relying on, that you're not you're just scanning it. and You're like, oh, okay, it's Jane at Acme Corporation. Okay, but you miss that the spelling is wrong because the cyber criminals have noticed his invoice. And then they'll send that email to you that says, hey, we just sent you an invoice for one hundred thousand dollars or whatever. We need you to uh, want We wanted to let you know we changed our account information. Here's the new account information to send the money to us so the person will go oh, okay all right so you change the account you send the money off 30 days later you get an email from the real Jane that goes hey we sent you an invoice we never got paid and then you go no i got it it's right here and they'll go that's not our email address and you're at a hundred thousand dollars and it's gone wow um, and by that point 30 60 90 days out yeah usually when the cyber criminal gets that money, they're moving it between either out to crypto exchange, cryptocurrency exchanges, and they're spreading it out that way. And then they have money mules that'll actually go get the money and then pick it up physically, convert it to cash, and then go deposit in other banks and move it around. So... Yeah, 30, 60, 90 days after the fact, it's gone.
0: I was reading um, an article about, you know, sort of AI and how, you know, artificial intelligence is taking over and, you know, sort of some of the dangers But beside it. And, and one of those instances that they gave is that they're coming up with, you know, fake videos, deep fakes deep and fakes. Uh, yep. things like that. Yep. But they they put it on the Guardian website, but the the, the eye of the Guardian name was in a different language. It was in like Latin yes. or something. The homograph.
1: The homograph. Yes. And so I thought yes. that that
0: was insane. I would have never because it was built to look exactly like the Guardian website, except for that one little character change. And it's you have to be so diligent now. And I feel like is there is there any kind of recourse for you know outside of just being really super diligent? Is there any kind of recourse from a lot of these different companies? I was reading that you know eighty five percent of our a cybersecurity policy or or when we know about hacks that are happening is because of private companies that are letting us know, not the government, the private companies mm-hmm. are are controlling right. a lot of that information or are really at the front lines of that. Is that kind of, I guess, sort of a, a safe area for us to be in where private corporations are controlling, you know, whether we know if we're getting hacked or not and ransomware? And what, what does that say, I guess, about the global I guess, perspective around cybersecurity?
1: So when you look at those third-party organizations that are out there, they are monitoring the network traffic. And one of the services they provide or one of the things that they do is monitoring and looking at that traffic. And if they do see something really suspicious, they'll come to you to help you. Um, They'll look at the money later on. Their goal is they want to be able to help the organizations that are out there. The government also does the same thing as well. We've been seeing a lot more with CISA, the Critical Infrastructure Security Agency. Um, they are there are the also ones that are available that can come in and help you if you've been had a breach. They can come in and do the analysis work. They're doing it and they're going to be able to report on it as well later on. But things like. Um, there are those organizations out there you can bring in. You have CISA, you have the FBI. So the government is out there that can help you. A lot of times, people just don't realize it or don't want to turn to the government. Feel, and the other aspect is, is sometimes people feel that if, if they're a publicly traded company and their stockholders get word of it, then their stock's going to drop. Well, the sad thing is if, the site, if, if you get hit with ransomware and you got to let your uh, customers and clients know your stock's going to drop anyway. That's why it's, it's really good. And this is all part of that risk management that they take on. You want to be implementing the right due diligence and security steps. Get your employees educated. You're going to have the technology. You want to have your processes, have your playbooks. And be aware that in the event that something happens, you can take the necessary action. The other thing is the SEC, regarding publicly traded companies, the SEC is now making a requirement that you have to report if you suffer a data breach. And so that's now waking up a lot of organizations going, oh shoot, okay, all right, now we really got to start doing more. Because we're hearing organizations getting hit every day. Every day there's always a new organization, whether healthcare, education, whatever it may be, all the different industries, but they are getting hit. And with having to report to the SEC, a lot more folks are starting to wake up. But a lot of times the smaller organizations, they still think that, nah, we're, we're small potatoes. They won't hit us. And when they do get hit, they run that risk of going out of business.
0: So what about, I guess, let's switch it to a little bit of prevention. You, you mentioned mm-hmm. that a multi-pronged approach of, you know, education and having that plan in place prior. Is, is that any different from say just one person, you know, trying to set up their own due diligence versus a business? What does that kind of look like uh, comparison
1: wise? So a comparison between entrepreneurs and like small, and medium business. Yeah. Okay. So you're when you're your entrepreneur, you're your own boss, right? You're you're doing all the work. You wanna make sure that you're going through your email. Make sure that you've got an understanding of what phishing emails look like and have that social understanding. Shameless plug, know before, the company I work for, we have home courses that are available that you can go through. It's on our website. But getting that education, that understanding is is key. When you're looking at your small and medium businesses, you're probably going to relying on a managed service provider or a managed security service provider that can help you with and do all that security. It's outsourcing all your cybersecurity because when you're that small medium business, you're 50 to a couple hundred people. You won't have that dedicated IT team or you might have one IT person, but having a managed service provider working with them to protect you um, is going to make things a lot easier for you. Yes, you're going to have to pay for it, but if you have a third-party accountant or you have a third-party other organizations that come in and provide services for you, they're there to help your business. And that's part of that. You're, You're essentially running the risk of having your house always unlocked or leaving your car unlocked on the streets in New York. You know, New York's a busy place, and if your car's unlocked, there's you're gonna run that risk and someone's gonna steal it. And so that's the same thing here. You want to make sure that you're keeping your doors locked, your people educated, because of that email being the front door to your organization, your electronic front door to your organization. You want to make sure that you have your people aware and understanding of what those dangers are and be able to watch out for it and then report it if it happens.
0: And then so a little bit real quick with prevention. So we're talking about prevention, but what about, I guess, sort of the evolution of where this all goes? Because I feel like I I was listening to uh, Mike Baker on the, on the Joe Rogan podcast and he was talking about, or maybe it was Mike Baker or somebody else, but they were talking about how there are certain systems in that certain governments are being used and they don't even need you to click on, they don't even need you to click a, you know, a link in a text message or a link in an email. Is that a future that isn't too far off for a lot of us that those kind of things are going to
1: happen? It's already here. Hmm. We hear a lot. But when this is kind of where that due diligence comes in, a lot of the times when the human error attacks are happening, a majority of that is because they're clicking on links, opening attachments, visiting websites they're not supposed to be at or end up going into. You have attacks called... File less malware, where you don't even get a file that's downloaded. It gets automatically loaded into the memory of your computer. And so it's a lot harder to track. But there are the technology, you know, the cyber criminal comes up with a new way, and then we come up with technology to stop it. And then they figure out, and so it's a cat and mouse game always that's going on to be able to keep the cyber criminals out but we want to be able to do that due diligence do that prevention to make sure that um, organizations can protect themselves but the kicker is going to be the cyber criminals always going to figure out a new way and a lot of the time they're targeting and going after nation states going after government agencies because if they get in with the government get into government systems you know then they can cause a lot more havoc but you know the government has their issues that they got to deal with um, but for the entrepreneurs the small, medium businesses, you're probably not going to see a lot of those, those types of sophisticated attacks. You're going to see the smaller level one techs that are going to try, be trying to get into your organization.
0: And so from, from that perspective, from I, I, whether you're a small business or a large enterprise company, how often should you be looking at your due diligence and your educational programs? Is it like a quarterly basis, every six months, once a year?
1: Yeah. I always like to, and a friend of mine came up with this analogy and I loved it and I, and I always steal it. It's kind of, if you think about You want to exercise because you want to stay healthy. How often would you exercise? You're going to do that once a day, once three times a week, once a month, once a quarter, once a year. If you're exercising once a quarter and you get to the end of the year and you're still 20 pounds overweight, you you sit there and go, well, how come I'm not losing the weight? It's because you're not doing frequently enough. It's going to come down to the culture of your organization. How much can your culture take? What's that comfort level? What's that due diligence required? Is it something you need to do it every week? You need to go through and assess your organization by sending f- your own internal phishing emails, or you have a company do that for you. Oh, is so it- like
0: a test run? Mm-hmm. Oh! Yep.
1: One of the things, shameless plug, with note before, that's what we do, is we provide security awareness training, but we also can do the phishing assessments. Smart. Or the phishing, doing it with voicemail or text messages. Do those assessments on your employees to test them to make sure, and we don't look at it as an assessment or as a test. It's more of a teaching moment. Mm. You think about when you're in grade school and you went to math class and you got those 50 math problems and you had to do math every single night. It was so that it would, you would be reminded and go through and understand what you had to do every single time solving the quadratic equation or, or whatever formula. The same thing applies here with this phishing assessments, going through and assessing your employees, making sure they can spot the latest phishing attacks that are going out there? What are the different ways that they're doing it? Are they cyber criminals looking at your organization and figuring out the org chart and then pretending to send an email from your head of marketing, your head of PR or your CEO? Because that hierarchy is what, as humans, we pay attention to. You get an email from your CEO that says, hey, are you in the office today? You're like, oh shoot, the CEO? Okay, yes, I'm in the office today. When in fact, that's the cyber criminal sending an email. So you have to develop those policies in your organization that says, okay, the CEO is never going to email you to ask you if you're in the office. You know, what does that culture look like in your organization? Make sure people are aware of it and then going through and doing those assessments. So if you're doing it once a week, a couple times a week, a couple times a month, and you're able to assess to see how your, what we call the fish-prone percentage, what does that look like in your organization? For us, you want to be less than 5%. So depending on how many people you have in your organization, if you have a have 100 people in your organization and you have a fish-prone percentage of 5%, that means one in every 20 people, five people out of your organization are clicking on a link. So five people are opening up that door. What's that going to look like for you? Where do you want to be? Do you want to be it where... One, once a year, one person accidentally clicks on the link. Sometimes that's all a criminal needs, but you're reducing that risk. Instead of 20 people every day clicking on a link and opening on the front door, now it's one person once a year that could be opening that door and then you could react to it and take the necessary actions to protect yourself.
0: So due diligence, continuous education, and then yep. also protect your email mm-hmm. as yep. religiously as you can. Your I'll-
1: email, and a lot of people get hundreds of emails a day and especially
0: in supply chain, right? Hundreds and, of emails. And at the end of
1: the day, you're a lot of times people go, okay, if I can clear out my inbox, I'm done. That's my work done for the day. <laughs> That's my mindset. Right. Um, and a lot of the time is, you know, at the end of the day, you're tired, you're trying to go through it. And then you get this email that says an invoice or benefits change, or we're changing the 401k or, and a lot of time it relates to money. You're past due on this invoice to us, mm. you click on the link to pay. And you're like, oh my God, I'm late. And you click without going through and going, okay, which company is this? Okay. I've never done business with them. Forget it. Um, or it is a company I've done business, but the email doesn't look right. The email, that email address doesn't quite look right. So you've got to go through and do those checks because that is the key to your front door. You don't just arbitrarily leave the front door open on your house. You want to make sure that you're always checking. You got to ring doorbell. You know, you're looking at your phone. Okay. Nope. Don't know that person not answering the door. You know, I mean, years ago, the doorbell would be ring and you'd be like, oh, who's at the front door? And you're all excited. Now I look at my phone and go, yeah, I'm not answering the yeah. door. I'm not talking to somebody soliciting. Mm. Or you see, oh, it's my friend. OK, it looks like them. All right. You know, and you go answer.
0: And, and speaking of what you're doing now, you're co-founder of Kinetic and you help companies. Correct me if I'm wrong. You help companies sort of in the in, in the tech space enter into the freight market when they kind of don't really have a clue of how to enter in the freight market. Is that a fair assessment?
2: Yeah. Yeah. So like our little pitch is that we work with freight tech companies and help them get their products to market more quickly and better adoption. And like more specifically, we work with them on things like sales and marketing and customer success.
0: And and on your website, it said you you help companies with their go-to market strategy. What essentially is all involved in a go-to market strategy and can only new companies take advantage of that?
2: No. So, I mean, ultimately, your go-to-market is just your your plan for launching your product or service into the market. And it encompasses a lot of things, right? It's what problem does your product solve? Who's your target audience? What's your message to that audience? Um, what's your sales and marketing strategy? Anything like that kind of falls into your go-to-market strategy. And uh, like to answer the second part of your question, no, it's not just for companies are just starting out like established companies do the same thing if you have a i don't know if you have a new product line you're going to have come up with a new go-to-market for that product line if you are trying to enter into a new industry like if you're very prevalent in know, food and beverage and you're trying to get into logistics you might have a different go-to-market for that so it's, it's really applicable to a lot of different companies at a lot of different stages of growth though it's it's most common probably in the smaller startups
0: and and what are where are some of the areas that they're getting wrong when when or, or maybe some of the things that are are eye catching to you before they go to market?
2: You know, I would say two things kind of jump out to me the most in that. One is understanding your audience, and two is understanding your messaging. And I'll go into each one of these a little bit. When I talk about understanding your audience, I mean when you talk about logistics, you a lot of times you hear about this multi-trillion dollar industry right with all this opportunity and that's true you know it's true and it sounds great to investors when they see this like total address addressable market in the trillions but like realistically what's your individual market for your software is it that trillion dollar market probably not you know very likely we run across companies that like they're a software that specifically targets brokers say well like that's not nearly the same size and you probably don't even target all brokers more than likely you target a specific subset of brokers. Cause once you hit a certain revenue size, you're probably building your own technology. If you're too small, like you don't realistically need certain types of tech. So mm-hmm. like, your actual audience is somewhere in the middle. You got to figure out like what that revenue range is. And you got to figure out even, even smaller minutiae, like is it a certain type of freight mix that we cater to? You know, if a broker has mostly contractual freight, is that a better fit for us versus if they um, have mostly transactional freight? I mean it plays a big a big part in what technology they need. And if you don't know this kind of stuff, you're either selling to the wrong people or you're selling to the right people but the wrong way. And that's mm. a big problem for a lot of freight tech companies.
0: I uh, ran uh, when you no, no, you, that's great because you actually brought up uh, a, a part of the next question that I wanted to ask because in the pre-show document that, that we ran through, you mentioned something that was really interesting to me and you said, service isn't enough for brokers to rely on anymore. They need to adopt some technology to stay competitive. So flipping the script a little bit from the freight tech companies that are entering the space, what about the brokers mm-hmm. that are entering the space? If, if for a new company, what are some of the must-have technologies that, that brokers need to invest in?
2: You know, it's a tough question, and I, I don't want to give you some generic it depends answer, but I'm kind of going to because <laughs> I know. Um, but it's it's dependent on a lot of different things. You know, sure. what are your growth plans? What's your cash flow look like? How well funded are you? What is your freight mix? Where do you see yourself in five years? All mm-hmm. of those things. I mean, if you're just a guy starting up a brokerage on his own in his garage, your needs are going to be much different from some venture backed uh brokerage with huge scaling plans in the next several years um if i were to give kind of just a cookie cutter answer to that though i like you definitely need a tms like you're gonna you're gonna struggle surviving without some sort of a tms um i'm big on capacity management tools i think those can be extremely helpful for brokerages of any size digital tracking is a big one you know it's becoming If it's not already, it's becoming a contractual requirement for any enterprise shipper you're going to come across. Like if you don't have digital tracking, just like people just aren't going to work with you um, in the near future here. And then accounting and back office. I mean, Nimi actually touched on this a lot. He, He talks a lot about how important it is, and it's he's right. You know, it's not the sexiest area of freight tech by any means, but there's a ton of opportunity to save cost in the back office, and there are a lot of companies doing some really interesting stuff there.
0: Hmm. Well, give us a few of the, the companies that are doing some interesting things on the accounting side, since it's relevant to this one.
2: Yeah, so on the accounting side, um, Melio Payments, I think, is an interesting one. Um, when you think it, it helps with cash flow, it's not a factoring company, but you can help. it helps by allowing you to pay some of your vendors by credit card. Um, even where they don't accept credit card payments, which is huge to get that extra 30 days afloat for some of these brokers, like cash flow is one of the main reasons that like early brokers go out go out of business. And then there's other things like like Hub Train's a big one, Triumph Pay, anything on that side. I think is definitely worth like, worth taking a look at.
0: Now, now on as, coming from the executive side of things, I, I think that there's always been an issue where executives they, they find that shiny new piece of software and they just want to initiate it and just buy it immediately before they even consult with their team. But what should a company do before that purchase is made to make sure it's a good fit within their processes?
2: So to make sure technology can be a good fit for you, I would say you kind of have to go through the exercise of figuring out what your specific problems are, not just what people are telling you to buy. You know, mm-hmm. there's, there's a lot of technology out there that they run into the exact same problem you mentioned, you know, it, it sits in their office and it's more just like tech decoration than anything else. Mm-hmm. And they just, they point to it for the customer and say, Hey, check this out. Look what we've got. It's, it's there at least. Right. But like to get value out of it, try to figure out what your actual problems are and what technology you need, or that could be used to fix those problems. And it's not just. Like, it's not just C suite problems, it's seat level users. What's Billy in the corner struggling with every day? How can you help him out and get some sort of an impact for that guy?
0: No, I love that. Going to the the employees that are in the trenches and getting the perspective from them versus the executive team that maybe doesn't have that hands-on approach as much as they used to. What is uh what what's some technology that's entered the freight space that has you really excited outside of the accounting solutions, but are there any other tools out there that that has you really excited for the future?
2: Kat, you know there's so much stuff out there. Um I'll try to narrow it down a little bit. I'm really excited about what I'd call workflow automation, like HubTap and tech and tabby that what they've got going on there. There are so many, so many manual processes that are just like repetitively click this button, then click this button, then click this button that anything you can do to automate that stuff is really valuable and saves a ton of time. I'm also really excited about what's going on with dynamic pricing nowadays. Um, there's so much data available for people and pricing is such a hot topic that to think that we're still relying on data that's like two weeks old and trying to figure out based on that what we're going to pay today. Like mm-hmm. it, it, it's mind boggling sometimes when there are better solutions out there uh, like green screens and sonar that are doing some really interesting stuff with pricing.
0: Now, bringing it back to Kinetic, your your company, especially with, with with sales, you you focus a lot in that area. How are you approaching the modern sales process in in, in sort of the the media landscape that we find ourselves in?
2: You know, I approach it. Um, we're heavily into social selling. You know, like providing valuable content for people rather than just pitching them on yourself, right? Like you'll see. You'll see us doing webinars and you'll see me doing LinkedIn content. And we suggest the same thing for our customers, right? You don't just need to go out into the world and shout your name to everybody. You need to provide content that actually makes sense to them, that they get some sort of value out of.
0: Are there any, I guess, what what are the most important platforms that you guys are focusing on uh, right now and in the near future? Is it like Uh, social media? Is it maybe email? You mentioned webinars. Um, Are there any other maybe like in-person events now that things are starting to open back up? Where are you guys going to be planning to focus your efforts?
2: Yeah, you know, like transportation can be a little bit weird when it comes to marketing because like what I would consider traditional marketing methods don't like often don't work as effectively because (laughs) like, like it's so word of mouth and so based on who you know that like people aren't really going to whatever like magazine you're reading and looking at an ad for your company, right? It's more like they're looking at like whoever their buddy recommended or they're like watching webinars or they're on LinkedIn and Facebook. They're reading articles um, and they're just listening to people whose opinions they value. Like the, Mm -hmm. I hate to use the word influencers, but like the influencers out there. So anything you can do to leverage that kind of stuff, I think there's a huge amount of value in that for companies.
0: Now, we talked early on in the show about how marketing can help the sales team more effectively. In your experience, where does marketing at most freight companies fall
2: short? You know, I'll I'll spin that a little bit. So instead of freight companies, I'll talk about the freight tech companies. And so for this, it's it's oftentimes the messaging itself. You know, the messaging itself doesn't it doesn't relate enough to the day-to-day of the freight companies. You know, oftentimes the messaging, it focuses on what's important to the freight tech company. And what's important to the freight tech company versus the freight company are two very different things. You know, the, the freight tech company is often very excited about their technology and their integrations and all sorts of other buzzwords. And, like, I don't want to diminish that because they are very important. But what's important for the day-to-day of a guy running a freight company is very different. And you have to make sure that your messaging actually is relatable to that person because that's who you're selling to, right?
0: And speaking of that, we talked earlier about, you know, the new brokerages that that are coming into the scene and the technology that they need to be investing in. What about some of the legacy companies? Are you seeing any, uh, they're usually or historically the ones to grasp onto technology. They're the ones that have the budget, right? So... Mm -hmm. Are there any technolo- are, are there any, I guess, tech in the space of the legacy companies that you sort of see as as going away? That they need to invest more into a, a new frame of thinking.
2: You know, it, it's so dependent on the individual company. I mean, like you got some of your larger players who are like very advanced when it comes to technology. They've been building their own proprietary tech for years, and what they have is amazing. Um, but like. Some of the smaller ones, like small to mid-sized ones, I, again, it kind of boils down to figuring out what works best for you. I would say that the biggest, like, my biggest takeaway is just, like, do something, you know? <laughs> like, the only, wrong, the only wrong answer is going through that exercise, figuring out what your problems are, and thinking, well, you know, we've been doing this for the past 20 years, and it seems to be working, so let's just keep doing this for the next 20 and see what happens. Well, like, that's not going to work for you, you know. Like, if that's your response, it, like the next twenty years aren't going to go well. If no matter what you do, just do something, and it'll be. Are better there any of
0: like, uh, the, uh, the larger companies? I mean, JB Hunt comes to mind for me. That that's a legacy company that's consistently mm-hmm. evolving and and adapting new com- or adapting new technologies and just ways of thinking. Are there any other companies out there, legacy wise, that you think are doing a good job of transitioning their their
2: their teams into the modern workforce? You know, I, I think they're all, they're all taking steps to varying degree, right? Like there are amazing things going on in a lot of this company, like us express and variants is doing some really cool stuff out there. I mean, you can probably rattle off the top 10 brokers and they all have different ways that they're trying to embrace technology. And it's great to see. I think they're, I think they're the ones kind of leading the, uh, um, the more widespread adoption of technology.
0: Where do you see the i guess the tech space evolving over the next few years and and how can companies sort of capitalize on that without overwhelming their users or their employees i should say
2: yeah without without overwhelming your users is is important you know and that kind of that kind of goes to the customer success piece of all of this mm-hmm. and that's something that a lot of freight tech companies do struggle with sometimes because a a lot of the time you bring some new technology on board and like for whatever reason it doesn't get used and oftentimes that's not the fault of the technology itself it's more related to how it was introduced and what the training was you know so mm-hmm. instead of thinking just like oh like this technology just isn't working for me like think about how it was actually presented to your people was it presented in terms of here's your new platform, Like, click these buttons, this is how it works, just do this? Or was it really described to them in terms of, this is why you need to use it. This is Hmm. the benefit that you're going to get from this tool, and it's going to drive a lot more adoption from your users, and it's going to overwhelm them less because they're going to understand why they need to use it.
0: With with that said, Loadsmart was really new to the game with a lot of the technology that that they were trying to bring into the space. So I'm sure it was a challenge trying to sell the product back then more than it is now. But as someone who's been in the industry for a while, what's been that biggest challenge that you've seen with getting companies to adopt technology like Loadsmart?
3: Sure, it's it's asking you know how are they doing processes today and they're, and, and understanding there's got to be a better way, right? And so that's what we're really you know opening up uh, shippers' eyes, some of our carrier partners as well, that there's got to be a better way to do this. Um, being adaptable and flexible, especially in today's market, is is something that we're hearing a lot from our shippers right now. And we're trying to bring, you know, to the table solutions uh, to help solve some of those really complex problems. And doing so through a, a marketplace, through a digital marketplace that, uh, that LoadSmart is, um, is really helping, you know, these shippers find efficiencies within their supply chain and saving them money at the same time.
0: And, and I think, too, with one of the key components with the LoadSmart platform, you're really focused on cloud computing and, and APIs, which is something that has been around in, in other sort of technology-focused industries, but it seems like sort of a, a newer concept in logistics for some reason. I mean, you guys have been trying to do this and trying to push this since 2014, but, but tell me a little bit about those challenges of trying to explain why this technology is, is better than, than may you know, what have existed in the past.
3: Sure. Some of those conversations are easier than others, but what we're really trying to sh- do is, is show you know value through um, cloud computing and, and, and the data that we're bringing into the uh, into the conversation. Talking to a lot of these shippers, primarily on the enterprise side, is they have access to a lot of data, but they can't action off of that data, right? And so what we're trying to do is bring a lot of data to the table, but more importantly, bring that to action. You know, a lot of a lot of companies have been talking about this for the last several years. But we feel that we're at the forefront of this uh, in terms of the integrations that we do with a lot of the the shipper partners that we have. We partner with a handful of TMS providers as well. And so we have access to a lot of this data. Now, taking that to a a step further is identifying how we can actually action off of it and provide that value back to the shipper. And there's some programs that we're putting in place right now um, that we brought to market uh, where we're getting a lot of traction. And uh, we're going to continue to double down on those getting the shipper feedback and how it's actually providing more value to their supply chain, uh, and continuing to see if we can um, grow, grow the wallet share with them.
0: I, I think that you, you hit the nail on the head as far as like making data actionable, because I think that that's that that's the key, missing key piece that so many companies are, are, are lacking is because they have all of this information, but they have no idea what to do with it. Can you give us an example of, of how you're making that data actionable for your shippers and carriers?
3: Absolutely. Well, a big part of it is is transparency to that data and, and showing them in different areas, particularly through our integrations that we have um, of saying, hey, this is something that you can actually buy better at. We have the, the capacity to be able to back that up. And by doing so, we can actually save you guys money and time within your, within your network. The other thing that we're, we're really bringing to the, the table is having open and honest conversations about rates. And it, I, I think it's, it's been really exposed you know, since the beginning of COVID in terms of shippers routing guides um, getting really disrupted. And ultimately, them going to the spot market. So what we're bringing to the table right now is, is true rate transparency through our dynamic pricing algorithm, through our quoting integrations that we have, through shippers TMSs. And actually giving that transparency in terms of, hey, here's where we're buying at and here's where we're good at. And by the way, we're going to be able to service your your, uh, your freight because we come with 100% capacity guarantee and I'll, I'll tell you we're not going to be competitive in every market we're not going to be competitive in every lane but having those conversations around data and around that transparency really allows the shipper to, to trust us to be able to come through and manage our business and again some of them are more more um, um, reluctant than others but this conversations now not necessarily happening at the uh, the dock it's act, it's happening at the um, the boardroom because the shippers are now understanding that the, the supply chain and um, the way that they're managing their freight is a huge cost to their overall business. And so taking that type of of, of that conversation, having those conversations with uh, key decision makers has been really beneficial.
0: I love that because you you hit on the, the key point of trust. Because it, and, and I think that the, a lot of business owners are a lot of, of, of people within this industry, they really will try to say yes to everything. But I think that you develop more trust when you say, we're not the best partners for that but these xy and z were were a much better fit now 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 switching gears a little bit let's talk a little bit about your experience because it was earlier this year that you actually joined loadsmart back in january of 2021 uh, you spent nearly 7 years at global trans why did you why was now that the this year the time to make the move from global trans over to to loadsmart sure
3: so I was, I, I've been watching uh, LoadSmart from afar during my time at, at Global Trends had some conversations uh, with some, some other industry folks, uh, and then got, got introduced to, uh, to both of the co-founders and really was compelled by their, their innovation, the way that they, they thought about disrupting an industry, but using a technology type of approach. Um, their vision that we were carrying out day in and day out uh, is something that really, really attracted me. To this, but also I think bringing in you know my experience, my expertise on growing and scaling teams at the right time was a perfect fit. I met a lot of the team before I came on on board, you know, because I had I had a lot of opportunities and options in the market, but but Loadsmart was uh, was by far the best in terms of the innovation, the tech, the vision, and the people uh, for me to for me to join. And uh, it's been a great decision. And the way that I look at it is, we're we're just starting this journey in terms of our growth and and, uh, and maturation in this in this industry.
0: And speaking of your experience, because one of the the key issues that has plagued this industry for for years, and and one of the things that stood out to me in, in some of your marketing materials is just the endless phone calls that brokers and shippers and carriers all have to make between each other. Now, as a former leader of a brokerage team, how has that shifted as far as the role of the broker? You know, with with adding this ability to not have to make all these phone calls, how has that helped and, and maybe shifted some of the responsibilities that that a, a regular broker in an office w- would have to deal with?
3: Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And it, the way that I describe it is is working a lot smarter, not harder, right? And the way that we're doing it is we're looking at, you know, again, asking why can this be automated? And if so, what can we do to do that? And it, so a, as a result, we don't have to spend our account managers, our account sales reps, don't have to spend the time to derive quotes, to de- derive rates, uh, to work hand in hand with the shippers, because we have all of that automated. And we're doing, um, you know, quoting integrations through a lot of these TMS providers. As a result, what that allows our team to do is focus on solving more of the shippers complex issues, talking more strategic uh, about how we can, you know, take on more of their, their available business, but doing so in a, in a thoughtful and responsible manner. And by, by having a lot of the, t- the, the, the tasks that have historically been manual, we automate that process to allow our staff to have... More, more time essentially, more bandwidth to be able to have these conversations.
0: Now, with with your technology, how does it fit into the workday of a shipper versus a broker? Is this something that is built, you know, in, in, inside of a TMS, and it's almost like an add on and integration, or is this a standalone website uh, experience? T- tell us a little bit about how it fits into the, I guess, the a typical workday of a of a broker versus a shipper.
3: Sure. So we the way that we think about this is we're trying to develop the best technology for the shippers to be able to manage their their freight effectively. We also want to make sure that we're coming through for our carrier partners and making and being that bridge between the two um, is something that we're focused on, on on daily. You know, initially we were we we classified ourselves or maybe got classified as a digital freight broker, but what we're trying to do now is move to more of a platform type of, uh, of, of uh, a business. And what that means is we want to be the connect uh, the connective tissue for all folks involved in the in the transaction. Whether you're a shipper, whether you're a broker, whether you're a carrier, we want to be that ecosystem to be able to connect. And we feel that we're, we're in a really good place to do that because of the partnerships that we have with our, our shippers, the partnerships and the relationships that we have with the carriers, and now going to market and seeing how we can potentially be a partner to, to some of the brokers. And what we're doing um, is is um, through quoting integrations. And a big part of this is we're, we're looking at um, shippers TMSs and how we can actually integrate into those those TMSs to provide dynamic rates, particularly in a historically uh, difficult time to find trucks right now. And as a result, what, what we found out is because of these integrations that we have with shippers, the routing guys are getting are getting really disrupted right now. And for us to be able to provide a dynamic rate that we have 100% capacity guarantee behind that is providing a lot of value. Yes, they may be paying a little bit more in terms of what they were going to pay Uh, You know, with some of their contract providers, but they know that we're in a spot to be able to do that and do that instantaneously through uh, through our pricing algorithm. And we've we've seen we've seen a ton of success with it. We've seen a a lot of customers asking more questions about it. And then taking that one step further is we're actually providing you know real time solutions for some of these shippers that are seeing some of these rates and saying, well, they're a little bit high. And so now we put um, guardrails in place. So in particular regions, in particular lanes, if customers don't want to see, you know, for example, a lane that's going over 20% of market, we can actually cap that and we won't send back a rate into their TMS. So these are just some examples that we're doing right now, listening to some of the feedback that we're getting for shippers, but most importantly, providing a value to them right now when they need trucks the most.
0: I love that. So you're, you're giving them the information at hand, especially with, with, with exactly what's going on in the market. And then when they have questions, then you can be that opportunity to, to or even set up the brokers for success and, and being that opportunity in order to, to educate of why you know a, a rate might be crazier than, than another one, which I'm sure they have a lot of questions. But if you're automating a lot of that, it feels like it, that the brokers would have more time to explain the fluctuation in, in, in those different rates. So that, that sounds pretty fascinating. Now, I was listening to a recent Recent uh, FreightWaves Insider episode. Shout out to, to Timothy Jr., um, who was the host of that, and it was with your CEO Felipe Capella. And he said, when the fir- when the company first got started, you received some initial pushback regarding your methodology around APIs. I feel like LoadSmart is a company that's not afraid to to push back with new ideas because it's it's still tough to get companies to adopt cloud technology and APIs today. So I can't imagine what it was like, you know, just a few years ago, but where are you still seeing those challenges with adoption? Are are in is any of this different on the broker versus the shipper side? Is maybe one more eager to jump onto the technology or in and maybe one a little bit more hesitant?
3: a good question and I think it's a mix of both right and I think the biggest the biggest challenge that we're seeing right now is just the lack of understanding and education of what these what the technology can do particularly on the the coding integrations that that we've successfully launched and understanding how that actually impacts their supply chain and you know every shipper is different and so what we're taking is a a consultative approach with each of our, our our account managers really digging in and understanding how we can provide value through technology uh, for that particular shipper's routing guide. And uh, like I said, each one's different. And so what we've uncovered is if you take that more education uh, or, or of an educational approach, having that transparency that we talked about earlier and just going open and saying, hey, this is how this could really help benefit you and let me show you why, there's they're there a lot more receptive to that. Um, and the, the challenge is getting some of the decision makers on the phone right now, just particularly how difficult it is. And so what we're trying to do is provide a really good service like a traditional freight broker does, but taking that one step further and really showing them the value uh, that the technology can do and also having, you know, peppering in some of the data that we were talking about earlier as well. And so kind of bringing that full circle um, is something that uh, we've had a lot of success with. On the broker side, we're, we're evaluating this right now in terms of how can we help some of our fellow brokers out there and it's, it's a fine balancing act right now because of course we want to make sure that we're not uh, giving away any secret sauce or if it's a conflict of interest but there has been a lot of a lot of reception from the broker market because just like everyone else they're having a difficult time finding trucks so some of the things that we've done from the automation you know the digital freight matching uh to our our, our rate api and our rating product uh we're now taking to market an rfp guide to help manage this business Um, there's a lot of, there's a lot of reception for this. And now we're having those conversations of how it fits their particular network.
0: And, and with all of that said, I mean, there, there's still so much uncertainty with the market, and, and especially it's just been put on steroids over the last year and a half because of COVID. Um, you know, work and work-life balance has sort of morphed together. You, you're not really sure which one starts and which one ends. And and with you guys in particular, I thought it was interesting that you guys, with the, the greater focus on folks working remote and working from home, you guys chose to, to sort, I don't want to say double down, but you guys chose, to, to open up still a, a 35,000 square foot facility in in Chicago um, you're working on a, a hybrid work approach. Why did you feel like that that was a, a good decision for, for load smart to take versus you know some of the other companies that have gone fully remote?
3: Yeah, really good question and this is something that we we contemplated and had a lot of discussion about and not just at the executive level but also at the at the rep level too right so we wanted to get buy-in from, from all of our staff. A real quick note: We just went live, and uh, we had our grand opening uh, this week uh, with the with the new 35,000 square foot uh, office in downtown Chicago. So the, the the staff is really excited about it. But the main thing and the main takeaway was just the collaboration in the in the conversation. Right? We're ta- We're constantly talking about and asking why, and having that in a collaborative type of uh, uh, of environment, as opposed to doing it through Zoom or phone calls, was something that the team was really learning. And we made the decision. You know, late uh, or earlier this year that we wanted to do that, and we're starting to see it pay off. And also, you know, just having that camaraderie again, particularly in in uh, in brokerage, where you know teams are on the sales side of working with the operations team and making sure that you you have that open dialogue. It's so much easier if you need something to to troubleshoot an issue in real time as opposed to scheduling a Zoom call or picking up the phone. So we're seeing a lot of that, and I think it's playing through right now for our for our shippers and carriers. You know, we've been able we've been able to post some record months. Uh, in terms of our, our growth, and we don't see anything, any any time slowing down. One thing that we are doing is being exceptionally mindful of you know making sure that we're following all the guidelines and protocols that are in place. Uh, we are having a, a, a hybrid type of environment, so we're not requiring our staff to come in five days and we're doing that you know flex. So it's it's been overall it's been overall positive and we're really looking forward to seeing how it continues
0: i think if you told folks you know two years ago that a lot of, of brokerage offices would be a hybrid approach of work from home and work in the office they would have lost their minds <laughs> that is one position that i'm just not exactly sure that it could ever just go fully remote so I, I i'm right there with you because it's just one of those things that there there are some levels of collaboration that cannot be replicated in a virtual environment so i love that you guys are, are offering at least a hybrid solution for, for those who want, you know, the, the pros and the cons of, of each solution. It's not a, you know, a hard stance one way or another.
3: Well, it's, it's funny you say that too, because I was in the same boat life. I, I, I'm like, there's no way that this could happen. Right. But when you're, when you're faced with very difficult decisions and you have to continue to manage business and come through for your shippers and your, and your carriers, you had to do it. And so we're like a lot of others that uh, had to pivot very quickly and we did it successfully. And so now we want we have a mix of both that I think is going to be uh, something that we can we can really build upon.
0: That's awesome. Congratulations on on that front because it's not a difficult feat in, in order to tackle, especially after the, the last year and a half. Now, now with your going back to your experience for a bit, you, you've worked in several leadership roles from brokerage to carrier sales and now account management. What problems are you solving for your customers today and what problems are you hoping to solve for them in the future?
3: Good question. So this this varies, of of course, but I I think the biggest uh, thing is trying to how can they remain more more efficient, right? And how can we as a as a provider for them help them do those efficiencies? And so a a lot of the stuff that we talked about, you know, through rate transparency, uh, through data data sharing, through data insights, and being able to bring that to life where shippers can actually act on it and hopefully save save time and cost. That's what we're trying to solve for. Um, It's it's definitely a, a difficult difficult uh, a place to be, but it's something that we're, we're, we're obsessing about and we want to continue to come through for our, for our shippers.
0: Okay, last question. If I gave you a magic wand and you could answer it in, in one short answer, if uh, you could fix the global supply chain crisis, what would you do? What we're talking
3: about right now, just being more open with one another. And that's just not on the shipper level, that's across the entire industry. Shippers, carriers, other brokers, folks that help us, you know, from the data side and just have open and honest conversations. And there's a lot of market share out there, right? And we're all competitors. But I think, you know, bringing the the best of all the worlds together, a lot of smart people in this business and seeing how that uh, that can come out, I think would be a really, really good thing for business.
0: Jonathan Rojas, VP of Carrier Management and Operations over at Transfix, is now joining the show. And and Jonathan, for folks who are unfamiliar with Transfix, can you give us a little bit of an elevator pitch on how you help shippers versus carriers?
4: Yes, awesome. Thanks for having me on. Um, so at Transfix, we're a market, market leading next generation flat plat, platform for tran, transforming the tradition and, traditional and digital freight sector. Ultimately, what we're trying to do is for carriers looking to find different types of opportunities for their business, not necessarily one load to one truck, but different opportunities that allows them to actually find consistency to their business. And on the shipper end, what we're looking to do is find partner carriers that match to the business. And once again, not a one-to-one, but look to find a one-to-many.
0: And and so with your, backing it up a little bit, because you've been in logistics for a while. You spent some time at J.B. Hunt and Walmart before landing your current role over at Transfix. But before we get into your time at, at Transfix, how did you initially find yourself wanting to work in logistics? Did you come from a family um, that, that worked in logistics or trucking for a long period of time? Or did you just sort of, you know, find yourself being attracted to it?
4: Funny story. So what I tell everyone, Craigslist got me into logistics. <laughs> uh, in college, I was looking for an internship and ended up landing a, an internship through Craigslist and worked for a, a brokerage out in Orlando and really learned the industry and. In, in, Got an appreciation for, you know, your avocado in the supermarkets, like this, all this work behind the scenes that happens to get it there. And from there, it really, I was very curious on like how inefficient it was. So at the time, um, I, the, the guy that taught me the business, he took out an Atlas and this was like 2011. And I'm like, an Atlas? What is an Atlas? <laughs> I obviously knew what an Atlas was, but like, I was like, Google Maps, like we can use Google right. Maps. Um, so it was definitely like eye-opening in terms of, you know, the lack of technology in in trucking, and he, like early on in the tra- in, in the internship, I was like looking to find uh, like ways to optimize our process, and it continued just like more and more curiosity just continued to lead me through, you know, getting it in more ingrained in in freight.
0: And so you you obviously have that background from working with carriers um, all throughout the years, and then you find yourself at Transfix, and your carrier relationship, you know, you. How does that, I guess, how does the relationship evolve with the carriers? Because you've been there at Transfix for for more than six years. So with the digital age that we find ourselves in, do you find it more challenging or or kind of easier to connect with carriers nowadays?
4: I think it's easier, to be honest with you. You know, I think the, the one thing that is exciting is carriers want to change. They know the industry is changing. They know technology is coming. I think sometimes technology can be intimidating and they don't know where to start, right? Like there's a lot of stuff out there that exists and a lot of stuff is popping up. Uh, but in terms of the relationship, we're able to, you know, at Transix, we're able to show carriers how to leverage technology. We're able to show them that by leveraging our platform, they're actually able to use a platform in their advantage to gain access to more business in terms of being able to let the platform do the work for you because you're actually very good at running a trucking company. But in terms of finding business, let us help you with that and really be an extension of your sales team so like that way they can you know grow their business and then execute their business um, at the same time using our technology.
0: Let's actually get into a little bit of those specifics because what are those pain points that a carrier is experiencing before they join your platform? And then what does Transfix solve for them? How, how, does, how does Transfix fit into their workday?
4: Yeah, so pain points for carriers, not, it's not necessarily very easy to go find consistent freight right? Like you ultimately have to find either a broker or someone they have a relationship with, they may have access to some high volume account or, you know, consistent spot opportunities, whatever it is. So in terms of the lack of finding consistent freight, then you have the, the ability to actually find a reliable partner. I think a lot of times that we've heard from carriers is like, they kind of have their guard up when they're working with a broker. Um, but when Transix, what we have done is really come in and said like, hey, we're a business partner. We're not just a broker. And we have technology to help you be able to leverage our network of freight that we have. And just like, once again, it's not just one load, but we have consistent, dense freight that that's what they're looking for. Consistent, repeatable business that allows them to focus on growing, scaling their business instead of every day trying to survive
0: and, and does Transfix fit? And forgive me if this is, sounds like a dumb question, but is it is it a replacement for like a TMS or like a fleet management software, or is it really a complement to those those different platforms?
4: Yep. So at Transfix, uh, we have Transfix. We have a, the, our brokerage, and so we're able to provide them free, But we also have Transfix FMS, and Transfix FMS is a fleet management tool for carriers. It allows them to fully manage their fleet. It doesn't just. It's not limited to Transfix they can use it across their whole entire book of business. So other brokers, other shippers, which is actually a very unique thing. We're not building just a tool that can help Transfix. We're building a tool that actually enables the carrier to optimize their business. And then the platform enables them to have a streamlined communication. So with the Transfix FMS, they're able to not only manage their fleet, but now they have automation to communication to either send load updates, load details to their their driver. The driver can send updates to their dispatcher in the centralized platform. But they can also automate communication to their brokers or the shippers that they're working with, which is actually a feature that carriers love because you have that load that's delivering at three in the morning and the dispatcher is likely sleeping. The driver sends that update to the dispatcher. The shipper doesn't get the update till the dispatcher wakes up. But with Transfix FMS, the dispatcher is actually able to set automatic updates that once that load delivers, it automatically sends that update to the shipper. And once the you know dispatcher gets back in the office, off they go to either finding more freight for the trucks that they need, or they're able to, you know, not have to focus on something that's already been completed. And another thing that we have is a new feature that we released, which is it allows a, a carrier to post all their available trucks and have a, a centralized list of all their available trucks that they can share with brokers or shippers. And why is this so 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 different? And the reason why is like you know, being on the receive again as a broker, A lot of times I'm getting all these emails of available trucks, and oftentimes you call the carrier, it's like, sorry, that truck is gone. But with Transfix FMS, they're able to post their trucks and they can send a live link to their brokers, to their shippers that they are updating. So if that truck is covered, it automatically removes it from that list. If they have a truck that became available, they can then update the list. And in real time, the people who have the link get get those updates
0: that sounds like such a breath of fresh air because then these carriers don't have to spend all that time sending emails and making phone calls and letting people know status updates about their trucks they can just send one link and be like here check for yourself now on the shipper side of things do you find it th- that i i would imagine that this is a, a tool that can help shippers develop those intimate relationships or those better relationships with carriers it, it, is that a safe assumption about what what transfix can can do for shippers on the shipper side of things that they can actually, connect with carriers easily without having to go through a, a 3PL? So
4: with Transfix, one thing that we pride ourselves in is scoring our carriers and ensuring that who is using our platform is high quality. So that's how shippers are empowered, or are empowered, right? We give them high quality capacity because we have partner carriers that are using our platform and providing those updates. So everything's happening in, in real time and streamlining that communication. Ultimately, we're trying to minimize is that lag between an update, and that's where the carriers is empowered at FMS. They're able to provide those updates. They're able to empower their driver with sending those real-time updates as well, collecting the POD, streamlining what it would take to do, a you know, invoice a shipment. The driver can, you know, immediately deliver a load, uploads the POD and invoices. And once again, this is not just for a transfix load. This is for the whole entire book of business, which like when you can, when you add that element of it, it's so different because it's actually empowering a carrier to have a a. a Partner broker with them, but then they also have this uh, uh, freight platform that takes their business to the next level.
0: Now, I, I would like to say that you know we're kind of in a post COVID world, but we're obviously not. Um, but with the, I guess the the transition from folks from the the the, uh, the world that we knew before COVID to the world that we find ourselves in now, are you finding that more shippers and carriers are are wanting to adopt technology, or some of them maybe are still a little hesitant?
4: I think we're seeing a big shift into technology. I think that, like, what, if anything, what this has showed us throughout the COVID and post-COVID world is that technology is essential and that the trucking industry needs to evolve. And it is evolving. I think this digitization of trucking that is happening is is awesome, right? Like, more now than ever, carriers want to understand what facilities are taking long to unload or which ones are efficient. Shippers are asking, hey, like, how can I improve my unloading or loading? Which ones the facility need to focus? Because ultimately, driving that efficiency and being very prescriptive using data is what's going to allow us to really find the, faci- like, the areas of opportunity. A lot of things were used to, you know, used to be word of mouth, but now, like, even in meetings that I'm in with shippers, it's like, show me the data. Cares are showing up with data and saying, like, look, like, this is like, how long it's taking me to drive now. It's taking seven hours versus six, or this facility takes three versus five. So it's definitely changing, and it's for the better, to be honest.
0: Absolutely. So, so, I mean, it sounds like you guys have already uh, accomplished so much. Did you have any, you know, sort of goals or, or things that you're going to be releasing, you know, for 2022 or beyond?
4: Yeah, so we're, we are focusing heavily on investing in a carrier platform. Um, our focus is really to en- enable carriers, help carriers get into this digitization. Uh, we want to empower them with technology. How do you make a small operator feel like a thousand truck company? And technology is really what's the difference between a lot of these companies. So we're going to continue to invest in that and that experience to allow carriers to have technology at their fingertips. The platform, the F- Transfers to FMS, is free with is free. So any carrier can sign up for it. Either they work with us on on the brokerage side or they don't. And I think that's also an amazing aspect of it because our focus is we want to empower carriers with technology and not have to like charge them a premium for it. It's just like come use this and come evolve the business and. Jump with us as we go to transform trucking.
0: I love that model because then it's, it's, it's one less cost that the carrier has to worry about, uh, initially. And then they become, you know, maybe users of the platform. They adopt it more into their work day and then they become paying customers, hopefully in the future. And then, you know, everybody is saving time and they're saving money. Um, so it, it sounds like a, you know, a great platform in order for, you know, any kind of established carrier, a new carrier in order to join. Now I, 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 I would be remiss if I didn't bring this up because I was looking at your LinkedIn earlier today. Notice that you went to UCF. I live in Jacksonville, Florida. um, So I'm surrounded by Gator fans. I'm not sure if you follow, you know, UCF football at all. But I just wanted to say thank you for for UCF program beating the Florida Gators in a bowl game because it just shut the Gator fans up around here. So um, I'm not sure. Did you catch any of that game?
4: I did. I was super excited. I have a really good friend of mine that's a Gator. And, you know, in the morning I texted him, you know, just a big smiley (laughs) face. Now uh, yeah go nights we're, we're very happy
0: <laughs> what what kind of services does your company provide So
5: I spent um, uh, half or more yeah about a little over half of my career working in the corporate world, and the foundation and I was as a developer was with PepsiCo mm. and with Pepsi, I was developing software to track the sales and promotion of the products that they sold through their franchises and it was just a Pepsi was a Fortune 50 company, uh, way ahead of their uh, time in terms of using handhelds and just route management Mm -hmm. and loading trucks. It was a tremendous company. But over the years, I was always looking to grow and where were things going and how do I, you know, match my skills. And to make a long story short, 18 years ago, I formed my own company, Advantage Technology Solutions, and we focus on manufacturing, distribution, and logistics companies helping them make better decisions in technology and not just on buying it but implementing it so they get mm. the business benefits they're seeking.
0: I love that you mentioned that because we're here at at Ignite but hosted by PCS software and it's a technology logistics conference. It's the first one back. H- how does it sort of feel like being back live with other, you know, people in real life at a conference again?
5: You know, I have to be frank. You know, I had some anxiety, you know, about coming. And, you know, at first it was like, great. Oh, I can't wait just to be back. And then, of course, you know, you, you listen to the news mm-hmm. and it makes you uncertain, right? But it's just such a good feeling. The hotel, you know, it's done a tremendous job and as well as everybody that's facilitated it. And there's nothing like being together. You know, I'm a mobile warrior. You know, like George Collins said, a modern man. Uh, But, you know, there's nothing like being with people. The energy flows between people when they're together differently than virtually
0: absolutely I, I've been doing this show since March of this year and and the night and day difference between having a conversation with somebody over like a, a I guess a, a zoom call on steroids versus in person is just dramatically different you can't control a lot of the settings that are around you and I think that that sort of speaks to to everyday life but it really is the conversation just flows so much better when you're in person and so so being at this conference you you, you've moderated panels, you're, 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 speaking during it. Uh, tell us a little bit about the, those takeaways. Cause by the time this airs, you, you'll, you'll essentially be done as far as like teaching. So, so tell us about the topics that, that you're speaking on here today. So, or
5: this week. I'll start with that. Thank you. Um, and it was really a thrill and, and I was really very honored when, uh, Tony Vidiello, you know, asked me to present and, um, and the topic was supply chain digitalization, which is, you know, a hot topic. And, you know, so one of the things that I'm really proud of is I'm president of CSCMP's New York, New Jersey roundtable. Oh. For those that don't know, that's council supply chain management professionals. And Tony's uh, on the board with me in marketing. So, you know, we've had a good relationship, but to be able, you know, to present, um, and what I did was, which is just amazing. And you know from Freightwaves, the value of CSCMP, um, used their research. You know, I went online and just got some tremendous new research, which I used in my own presentation to help companies realize, like, what's driving them today? Hmm. What's driving you outside customers? What pressures are you feeling to improve your technology? And what obstacles are are you facing uh, that are preventing you? Hmm. And, you know, most companies have it, whether it's money, whether it's people having the right resources, uh, whatever it may be. And then I spoke about what Advantage Technology Solutions does and just really gave a roadmap of how to move forward in this climate of uncertainty. More, there's nothing that's steady underneath us. It's more volatile than ever. But, you know, you, we have to move forward. You can't stay it's not safe to stay Mm -hmm. in your your one place. Absolutely.
0: So so let's dive into a little bit of those, uh, technology advancements because it it feels like there's so much that's been coming into the space over the last few years. Walk us through what uh, some of those common challenges that you're facing. What, what kind of companies are are you working with that that are facing these issues of, of what to buy and and how to fit it into their, their tech stack?
5: It comes from all angles. I mean, um, I'll I'll start from the positive. I always like to begin with the positive. And it's amazing how manufacturing is rebounding in America. We Mm. went through outsourcing everything, not everything, but a lot to Asia, (laughs) right? Because it was cheaper. But now it's not just about near sourcing. Then it was like maybe, you know, we should lessen our cost by let's move some of it to Mexico. Mm. But now it's about, you know, resourcing in America. And it's not merely because of finances, it's because of past investment. And our companies are ready for it to uh, l- utilize technology and compete. And this is going to be fueled by the infrastructure bill, even more so. So manufacturing companies, uh, distribution companies are have been swaying trying to uh, evolve into a, an omni-channel world. Where they only sold to retail and now we're providing services to their website and we're selling directly and they don't have the technical internal talent to really, I have a challenge to keep up. One of the reasons I come to a conference like this is to learn. So how could somebody who's, they're totally devoted to what they do keep up with all the technological advances
0: right it's very challenging I think for a lot of these companies because they're just focused on survival mode and and they're not focused on growth mode just yet at least you know some of the the luckier ones can be focused on growth while some of these other ones are just just treading water and, and trying to survive the the storm it looks like you know we're kind of coming out of it um, but there's still an incredible amount of difficulty um, you mentioned the the infrastructure bill that that was uh, just recently passed I believe are there That's any It's still it's still still in discussion. Are are there any key components within that infrastructure bill that that you think are really going to help some of these manufacturers?
5: You know, um, all of it is going to help. You know, in the U.S. in terms of investing in infrastructure, the one thing it's really not even being spoken about uh, much. But I'm a people person. I'm very sensitive to people, and I really lead with the people component. It's not about managing technology. It's about managing change. Hmm. And change begins with the people that work in the company. And so one of the facets of this that I think is really critical is improving broadband throughout the United States. When I heard it was bad enough to deal with all the issues of the pandemic, but poor people were trying to work from home and didn't have a connection, have to sit outside a Starbucks in a parking lot or something like that to connect. This is just... It's not even fair. There's no reason for it. We should right. be investing uh, in America to enable everyone from wherever they are, anytime, anywhere, to have that kind of connectivity that they need.
0: And, and I think that's, um, with solutions like, uh, like Elon Musk is, uh, Starlink system, which is trying to provide that internet service to rur- rural areas. But even then, like, it, it, like you said, in, in the cities, there, there's people that, that have to go to a Starbucks or go to some other location in order to get a decent Wi-Fi signal. Uh, it, it's one of those things that it, it, this was this should have been invested in years ago, and a lot of these big isps just chose they, they got a lot of money from the government and then they chose not to invest in the things that that they got the money for and so now we're dealing with this massive influx of people who are doing everything online and they're not, they, they're not equipped in order to handle it. And even from a, you know, a, a parent situation where they have to, to help their kids while they're also trying to work, it's just creating the, these extra obstacles that, uh, it's, it's difficult to see where, where the pathway is for, moves forward. Because even with the Starlink situation, it's, it's almost like 400 bucks, I think, just to get the mini satellite that sits in your house or, or sits outside. I, I don't know too many people that, that, you know, would, would take up on that offer unless you have the funds in order to be able to purchase something right. like that.
5: And, and, and now, you know, whether it's PCS or any of the, uh, software providers where everything's on the cloud, Everything's about connecting to the Internet. And so, you know, I've been using a line for years. Actually, I came to me from uh, when I ran a 7x24 365 organization Mm -hmm. that you're only as strong as your weakest link. Mm -hmm. You could do everything right, but whatever that weakest link is could destroy everything. And in this case, it's connectivity. Mm -hmm. You you could have all this great opportunity, but if you don't have ample connectivity in your business or your warehouse or for your driver's, to connect and communicate, then the ability to share information real time is gone.
0: Right. So uh, another one of the the hot topics that you were discussing that you were a moderator on, and I I caught this panel and it was really fascinating. It's about sustainability. Uh, can you give us some key takeaways of of what you got from that conversation?
5: First of all, it's just amazing. And again, why why come to conferences? Because you get blown away by what you don't know is going on. Right. And so. Uh, just with Detmar Logistics and what they're doing with electronic vehicles today. And they just posted this morning that they're adding 300 more. So this is amazing to me that, you know, companies are not, you know, While companies, we just came from a session where someone said they ordered a Tesla truck and they have no idea when it will arrive. <laughs> but they're also, this is reality, right? Mm-hmm. There's some that's future, but there's some real business uh, utilization right now in 2021 that's amazing and can be modeled. And, you know, if they're getting success, then it could drive success elsewhere. So that was one. The second, and this is really uh, key to me, uh, and I think last year is really demonstrated, not just in the United States but globally, uh, it's about people and, you know, paying attention to people. Uh, and that's really important in overall sustainability from a consumer perspective. How are companies treating their people, and is there diversity, equity, inclusion? All of that. This is not just a nice to have. Hmm. This is now becoming more and more important in the buy decision, which makes you know companies more uh, uh, focused on it, hmm. and they know they have to deal with it. And the other piece of this is really uh, managing your. Uh, the companies you work with, your suppliers, and you know what are they doing? Because consumers are paying more and more and more attention to it. So, and again, the infrastructure bill and, and climate is now becoming more focused uh, from a national perspective. So, I think these are these are forces in motion that will continue, and I think those are really positive.
0: And it's all it almost goes back to the central theme that you you have to adapt to survive. Especially with not, not just on the people side of things, but the technology side of things.
5: So, so true. But it, as it is, it, it's not. So you know why I say that? Because technology is not always the answer. Hmm. And you know, I don't believe in technology for, I love technology, but it's not for technology, technology's sake. It's, it has to, it's a tool. And only if it's utilized correctly do you gain benefits from it, like any tool. So it's really about applying technology in a business, how and where one gets the greatest benefits. And why I said that is that, you know, there are third-party logistics companies out there that are still, you know, they're bringing corrugated pallets. And they don't see the need for even barcoding. And if they could manage and they have strong enough processes and they're making money because people continue to fill their warehouses, they're not as motivated to improve their technology. But if you're in e-commerce, if you're in fulfillment, if you're, you know, uh, dealing with not just uh, pallets but cases and eaches and the return of those, which is a whole separate. Nobody in this conference yet has talked about reverse logistics and the secondary market, which in my opinion is going to really take everything that we've just talked about tenfold.
0: Right. Because what's the, what's the point in, in offering e-commerce solutions if you don't have a good reverse logistics plan? And that's a really good point. I, I think that that's something that isn't being talked about enough. How are you helping companies with their, with the decision of what kind of technology to, to purchase or, or to invest in? Because it, it seems like it, you, you hit the nail on the head with, with processes. If somebody is stuck in their ways as far as their processes are concerned, but maybe they see a, a room for a, improvement in, in certain areas, how are you approaching that conversation uh, in, in order to to advise them on, on, on what tech to even add to their tech stack?
5: It's such a great question. So you know I, I always begin with, you know, where are you? So what I like to do is is start with the executives and you know if I get engaged in a project with a company, what I usually do is help them document their requirements. Mm-hmm. And whether it's for software or automation, um, this is no longer just a financial decision or an IT decision. It has to be a cross-functional decision. And so all of the parties that are impacted, operations, customer service, but sales and marketing, every person in that company that's involved needs to be involved in the decisions from looking at the vendors to the final uh, decision on that. And that's really the most critical thing. And out of that, once you have a clear understanding of, where you are and what you're seeking, then you could start looking at vendors that may match that, hmm. and you start looking at how well they match that.
0: And and so you you brought up marketing, which is uh, I which I could talk all day about. And and, and you're also what I, I I loved about your profile is that you're also a podcaster. You you started creating content. Can you tell tell us a little bit about why you wanted to start creating content and and what you've learned so far?
5: Wow, that's such a great <laughs> question. So. First of all, you know, sometimes it's just karma, right? And things just happen. And and so I had followed a colleague from my Pepsi days, and uh, he started uh, doing some digital content. And because of the pandemic, you know, I, I decided to do a series on the impacts of the vaccine and really look at it from a supply chain perspective. Because I what I said to myself was, this is the greatest supply chain challenge in history. Distributing these vaccines are the greatest supply chain challenge in history. And not only is just that in and of itself going on, but the technologies that are fueling that. Think about the sensor technology, what we're doing to keep, you know, the, the Pfizer, Moderna, uh, vaccines, you know, at the proper temperature. That's now going to transfer to the whole food industry. And that's about to evolve in a, just a magical way globally hmm. and totally change how food is distributed around the world. So I did a 12-part series on it and really looked to use it as how do you take a lesson from, you know, uh, uh, managing capacity, uh, distribution, technology, and applied it to day-to-day business and supply chain. So companies and executives could look at, okay, this is what's going on in that there's a lesson here that yeah. I could utilize and, and learn. So I felt really good about it and got some tremendous feedback on it.
0: And what were some of those lessons that, that you learned that companies should should be taking advantage of after studying the, the vaccine distribution plan?
5: So, so there's so many lessons. <laughs> you know, just think about one of the things that I really talked about yesterday. Such a great question. Thank you for asking that. It is about, you know, I didn't think this was a good plan. We had Operation Warp Speed. And I spoke yesterday that failing to plan is planning to fail. And Operation Warp Speed was about, you know, uh getting the vaccines and storing the vaccines, but not distributing the vaccines. It had nothing to do with distributing the vaccines to the states, to the cities, to the people. And that was the hole in the plan that the Biden administration, you know, uh inherited. And so that's such a valuable lesson about Planning and the thinking last through mile. planning.
0: It, they didn't plan last for the mile. last mile. Exactly,
5: exactly, right? And then it was about, you know, okay, going back to my, you're only as strong as your weakest link. Well, think about the challenges people had in just uh using systems that aren't good to begin with in hospitals, et cetera, to uh, register. And, you know, get an appointment for a vaccine. Those systems are broken. They're horrible. You know, voicemail messages, oh, call back tomorrow. So... Really valuable in terms of, you know, how do your customers try to connect to you? Uh, demand planning, right? Uh, did we have enough? Do we have too much? What do you do with it? What happens if you have too many vaccines and they have a shelf life of so many days? You certainly don't want to waste them. You need to be monitoring, tracking the uh, FIFO, first one in, first one out, or in this case, FIFO. First expiration date. First one needs mm. to be
0: out. That, that's a, such a good point because I remember early on when, when the vaccine was first being released, it, people were clamoring to get it, and they would be just be waiting in a parking lot, just hoping that there would be extras that would be given out that day. And even though you weren't part of the uh, part of the original rollout plan, which is the, the the elderly and the vulnerable, then you could just sit in the parking lot and you could just hope that they would have extras left over. Because I, I thought that that was a fact fascinating sort of look into the human psyche of, of where these failures were happening and, and the demand of people waiting in just in a parking lot to see just by chance if there were going to be some extras available.
5: Absolutely true. And, and one thing I, I was thinking of it as you were just saying this, I just mentioned in the last session, which was a phenomenal session about where technology is going and AI and machine learning. And I said to really get the maximum benefits, it's can't just be an internal focus It has to be collaboration because that's really where the maximum benefit is and so even that i used you know when you looked at the collaboration between fedex and ups splitting the nation east coast west coast we'll handle this side you handle that side and to be able to do that you know for pfizer was just phenomenal you know companies working together to get it done and I just traditional competitors
0: that. too that I mean you you would have never thought that uh, competitors like that heated competitors, which there's a fantastic podcast series got uh, business wars that covers their history and how they they started, so I thought that that was even more you brought up a great point with them two working together after they have had heated competition over the last you know sort of few decades, which I think is what was kind of cool to watch. Switching gears a little bit, what are a few things that you're thinking about today that you weren't thinking about 12 months ago?
5: Hmm, that's a that's a tough question. I have to think about it.
0: Because I know you it, mentioned collaboration. I think that I think that, the that's challenge the right ones. now,
5: the challenge right now is, I believe companies. Because they're being challenged, want to make quick decisions and you know there was something and there's it, it a there's a school of thought that says, you know fail fast, fail cheap hmm. and if you're trying certain things and you have the depth and breadth and money in an organization, if you're a Phillips electronics god bless you you know <laughs> but there's a lot of there's a lot of companies that are struggling. they don't have enough people, you know they're shipping containers of five times to ship something from asia as it was previous year so they they, they want to make rash decisions and it's tough to slow them down or uh, how do you how do you engage them in a way where they slow down enough to make a quality decision because making a bad decision on a transportation management software warehouse management software erp It's not just costly. It could be catastrophic to a company today. And it's not just the money. It's the, the diversion of the staff and then the frustration that it didn't work. If you put customers on the system and now it's not working and you have to back off, you know, so emotionally, mostly to the customers, if there's impact to the customers, then you're really in trouble. Right. And I've been in situations like that. I've been called in where companies have made bad decisions and then, you know, in the fire brought me into, Hey, you know we need you to help us get out of this
0: and, and what were some of those situations like? How did you help them get out of it and did they ultimately survive?
5: Yes so oh, good. I'll give you one you know uh you know these are companies that are uh, case studies some some are actually giving me video testimonials on the website but in this one case they made a bad decision on their own warehouse management software put it in it wasn't working uh, I knew the vendor and you know this vendor just was was one of the least professional vendors I had ever met. Hmm. In fact, I invented a term, uh, customer disservice, because I'd never saw anybody mistreat customers. And to me, I'm about customer obsession. I'm like Amazon, customer obsession. You're in the service industry, and you're not focused on your customers. You're not going to be around long. So they had made a bad decision. Their customers are angry. So I helped them make the right decision, pick the right warehouse management software, And help them transition this customer that was angry first and get them on the platform Mm. with EDI and exchange of information all well. So I didn't just satisfy my customer, I satisfied their customer.
0: Oh, that's brilliant. I love that. And so from all of these learning experiences, how is this, you know, you started creating content, you're, 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 helping all of these companies, not just only with, with their own, uh, decision-making, but also with their customer decision-making, uh, how are you evolving that into your plans for, for your company in the future? Is it more content on the horizon, um, or more special series planned? Uh, how are you approaching sort of this next year?
5: Thank you. Um. It's already evolving. You know, one of the things I I really like, uh, and to have the opportunity to do it here, not just to present but moderate a great panel on sustainability, be with you on this podcast. I want to do more of this. And, you know, I, I've i done it not just individually. I've done it as uh, a member board of CSCMP. CSCMP. We put on great uh, webinars. And so I want to do more and utilize that position to achieve more by reaching more people. I'll give you an example of what, you know, we're already doing, you know, because some of the folks are part of New York City Economic Development Corp, uh, Port Authority, New York, New Jersey. So these are amazing people that can really help uh, in a large way. You can get a larger benefit by impacting more people, specifically in education and jobs. Jobs are a real hot button for me because there are People without jobs, and in our industry especially, jobs without people. And I'm like on a mission to help that. I uh, actually have uh, something I'm really proud of. I sit on the board of the Urban Assembly School of Global Commerce. It's a high school in New York City devoted to supply chain. Hmm. And so really looking to build that platform to help these kids, you know, achieve better opportunities in life, but, but as well as to fill the void in, in supply chain.
0: I love that because there's so many, I, I think over the last year, we've really learned, I think the greater population, not not just us folks who are in the industry, but the rest of people that they would learned when the toilet paper is not on the shelves at the grocery store, what's affecting that. And so people started uh, getting more of an interest into supply chain and how it works, where their products are coming from. And so I think we're also seeing um, wh- what I heard coined as radical transparency. Um, certain brands now are letting you know their exact costs. I think Campbell Soup w- w- was one of these examples of where they source their materials and and how much pricing that they include and and, and how much an upcharge that they include. And there was a lot of fear initially that why would we release this kind of information? But then sales started to increase because people supported the brand because they knew where their stuff was coming from. And I think we're going to be seeing uh, more of that across the board and as supply chain becomes just a greater awareness for based on programs like that, because it really is... Is about the younger people and getting them involved and getting them enthusiastic about supply chain and where their stuff comes from. I, I, I think that that's, you're, you're doing a great job there.
5: And I actually used, and it wasn't the intention, but, you know, it just unfolded where some of the, 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 uh, videos series that I was doing, I was utilizing, you know, I sat in on weekly sessions with the principal and the teachers of the school and they were struggling, hmm. you know, taught enough to teach these kids. And then they were virtual. So I said, why not teach them, you know, you're in the supply chain, teach them about the vaccine. So they started to do this, and they started to utilize, and it's like, hey, there's a great example here, and the kids could connect to it. They could understand what it meant and how to tie it back to supply chain. Hmm. So now I want to do that at a higher level with kids in community colleges, and that's the opportunity with CSCMP that's really uh exciting to me to do that with community colleges in the metropolitan area, uh, Rutgers University, and to be able to really build that bridge to really help the students and help our industry.
0: I hope you enjoyed that episode of everything is logistics, a podcast by digital dispatch, where we help your company build a better website. And speaking of my company, I founded it back in 2018, but we recently streamlined our website services plans. So if you want to check out how we can help you and your marketing team build a better website and connect those ROI goals, then go visit digitaldispatch.io. You can also check out past episodes of this show and every show by hitting up the resources page on digitaldispatch.io or on everythingislogistics.com. I do some freelance content projects for select clients. And if you liked this show, then you might like some of the other content projects that I've worked on, like Cyberly, Maritime Means, and more. But until next time, I'm Blake Brumleave, and I will see you real soon. Go
5: Jags!